Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I'm your host, John Cribbs. I'm here with Mr. John Arminio. We have reached the end of the road on our uh, continuous bond watching rewatch marathon together. We're finally into the Daniel Craig era. In case you didn't know, we have extensive episode on 60s Bond. That's the five Conneries, 1967's uh, Casino Royale, 1969's Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And then on our next episode, we had a great time talking about 70s Bond. That's Connery's goofball masterpiece, Diamonds Are Forever, and the first four Roger Moore movies. After that, we split the 80s Bond into two episodes. And the first one we covered... Moore's first, uh, Moore's final three movies, as well as Connery's non-canon return, Never Say Never Again. And in the second episode, we, we extolled the undervalued Timothy Dalton and his two films. After that, we covered all four Pierce Brosnan adventures, misadventures, depending on your take, which spanned from 1995 to 2002, which brings us to the present. And we are here ready to dive into the concluding Daniel Craig era. Are you ready to do this, Mr. Arminio? I am more than ready, Mr. Cribs. I'm excited. Let's take a minute to talk about Danny Craig, just kind of on, just kind of before we go into the first film. My first question is: Is Bond a thug? What are your thoughts on that? In a lot of ways, he is. He's very willing to use violence to get information, but also, you know, in a lot of ways, like if you're just going back to the Fleming books. He really doesn't like killing. He sometimes has a visceral, emotional, and physical reaction to it. In the Casino Royale novel, he has a couple episodes of PTSD after episodes of violence. That's including the the torture. And so he's not this brutish psychopath. Um, But he is somebody who can subsume his emotions for periods of time to become to quote the films, a blunt instrument. So if you're observing Bond, you can certainly see why he would seem like a thug, but I don't think Bond himself is a thug. He's, he's too smart for that at the very least. It's funny that the Craig take on Bond seems mm-hmm. like a complete reinvention, even though if we go back to Connery, we've talked about a little bit. I mean, he's got like a bully side to him. He's got mm-hmm. kind of a, a mean streak for sure. And so it's not like it's totally out of character to present the character, you know, the, the James Bond character as someone who's willing to do the things that Daniel Craig does necessarily, but he definitely does it in a kind of unique way at the same time. My next question for you is can Bond be a rogue agent every time? <laughs> this no. is this is territory that Timothy Dalton obviously covered, you know, yeah. in License to Kill. And 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 and, that, and that's a big thing, I think, when it comes to appraising the Craig era for me. So many people just trashed Dalton at the time and still do to this day. And I don't understand why Dalton is considered a failure and Craig is considered one of one of the very best people to play Bond. The, the rogue nature of Craig's Bond does bother me. Because, yeah, he can't go on a rogue mission every single time. That, that has happened several times in Bond's past, I'm sure, or there have been every every actor who's played Bond has gone rogue at, at some point. But the whole Craig era was like a the first three movies are like a three movie reboot. And at the end, we get a, a at the very end of Skyfall, you know, we get a new M, we get the old M's office, and you get Craig getting a file for his next mission. And I remember seeing that and be like, <laughs> he's getting the mission 
uh, and it didn't really turn out that way. So I, I, I wish the elements that make this franchise unique were more celebrated in the Craig era. And I'm not just talking about the gadgets and, and the funny Q one-liners. I mean, the idea of getting a mission from MI6 and saving the world. Because we have Jason Bourne, we have Mission Impossible. That's where we have our rogue secret agents down. But I want Bond to be the lone silver servant, you know, taking it to these asshole billionaires who are going into <laughs> right. space for no reason. There is a certain element of throwing the baby out with the bathwater to this, you know, where it's like you can't totally strip down Bond and everything yeah. that's made him fun and exciting for the last 30 years. You know, I mean, you got to maintain some of that stuff. But do you consider these films? a hard reboot i mean do you think that this we're supposed to really think of this as like okay everything else forget it slate is clean this is a whole new thing this is a whole new series of bond movies i mean obviously it's an origin story casino royale takes it back to the beginning where he earns his double o status but do you think of these films as kind of separate from the other films like a completely new really a new era of bond uh, i do um and i think the crossing of the fictional timeline within the Bond universe and also the rights holding of Eon Productions and the Broccolis and the Saltzman, that makes everything 10 times more complicated than it would otherwise be. Because, you know, for decades, Spectre didn't exist, um, but now it always has again, I guess. <laughs> uh, and it's also confused because, you know, the same actor plays M bridging from the Brazen era through the reboot into the Craig era. But I do think it's the same actor playing a character named M, but it has been rebooted. Otherwise, I think the only way you can approach it is that Casino Royale happens, Quantum of Solace happens, and then Dr. No through Die Another Day happens, <laughs> and then Skyfall. Because... And that is another frustrating thing about the time of the Craig films is that he goes from Quantum of Solace, you know, hours after, you know, Casino Royale, where he that which is his first mission as a double O, and then all of a sudden in Skyfall, he's old news. Right. So, like, what happened to those 10 years or so of him being an agent? So it's to be fair, it does seem like he's aged 20 years between yeah. Quantum of Solace and Skyfall. Yeah. But what was your impression? Because this is this is the first, you know, changing the guard of Bond, I think, in our adult lives, right? I mean, we obviously saw uh, Pierce Brosnan take over after the Dalton franchise stalled. So what were your impressions when he first got cast? Were you one of the no blonde Bond types like a Tony Stella and the, <laughs> those kind of people? Um, I'm somebody who, when I see people gang up on a casting choice i usually side against that harsh criticism mm -hmm. uh, so when people were criticizing him like for being bond or or like spreading that picture of him in a life jacket like like okay nobody looks cool in a life jacket like sorry <laughs> so i was so except for marty mcfly well <laughs> it's true so seeing people just jump onto him and just looking at the history of bond you know i don't think any actor had positive feedback as soon as they were cast as bond maybe maybe mm, good Pierce point. brosnan because yeah. i think he he has this 
he had that, that suave Remington Teal persona anyway going into it. Mm-hmm. And so I was sort of on team Craig uh, from the get-go. Yeah. Had you seen him in anything before that? I mean, had you seen <clears throat> Layer Cake and movies like that um, uh, leading up into Drew? I had seen Munich and I liked him in Munich. And then when he was cast, I saw Layer Cake and I, I liked that too. Okay. All right. So you had a more positive kind of attitude going into Casino Royale. Then. Yeah. All right. So tell me, let's let's dive into Casino Royale in the first sure. of these movies. What were your impressions of that one? The only perfect Bond movie is From Watch With Love. But I love every second of Casino Royale. <laughs> and I know <laughs> it has problems. Like it has three or four endings. The main antagonist is gone for the last like 45 minutes in the climactic big fight scene. It's with people you've never seen before. The poker is ludicrous. <laughs> it looks cool. Um, but I, I, there are just so many great action scenes. It's so beautifully photographed. Um, I think the action scenes do such a good job of characterizing James Bond. Like I know the, the parkour scene has been warmed over, you know, since then so many times, but the moment where he charges through the wall instead of bouncing around or he catches the gun and throws it back at the bomb maker he's chasing, like that is what an action movie and an action scene needs to do. They're characterizing while being real awesome and you know it's photographed perfectly well uh, Ava Green is just absolutely magnetic and gorgeous and brilliant and funny as Vesper Lind you know Mathis is a great character who you are constantly guessing if you know he's on Bond's side and you don't know if Bond is right when he thinks he's been betrayed by Mathis or not Mads Mikkelsen is such a fantastic villain it's everything I could want if you were going to reboot a, a Bond franchise. A-plus casting, for yeah. sure. I mean, Eva Green, Mads, Giancarlo Giannini, Jeffrey Wright playing Felix Leiter. I mean, oh, I yeah. think, even though, you know, Mathis's only function is to mansplain poker to <laughs> yes, the audience. Yes, that's a little ham-handed, a little bit, yeah. Uh, that always makes me chuck when it cuts to him saying, yeah. now he's calling his bluff to us. You just want best to be like, shut the fuck up. I'm trying yeah. to watch the game. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. And it's interesting kind of the same way License to Kill gets criticized for kind of adapting a kind of more American sort of action movie, a kind of a lethal weapon type mentality. I think it's interesting that obviously a lot of people say, well, the Craig era, you know, borrows quite heavily from the Bourne movies, which were, you know, big, huge hits and yeah. introduced, as you said, parkour and different kind of choreography and very, like, very close action, very, you know, brutal, punching each other, throwing each other against the wall, very, you know, hand-to-hand combat kind of stuff, which we'd seen in Bond before, but, like, it seemed almost to be like, let's get this thing front and center for Casino Royale and the other Craig movies, you know, let's definitely, and again, I guess this kind of plays into the idea of, Craig being a, a brute of a bond, like he's not not afraid to get his hands dirty. You know, he's definitely jumps into a scrape and loves to just break someone's neck or throw them through a window or fly down the stairs with them. This seems to be like, that's what we're going to do. We're going to give him that sort of born identity as it were. But it works. <laughs> yeah. You're right. I mean, that's that stuff is fun. But I think we do get him, you know, in a casino, in a tuxedo, in exotic locations and and sort of using his brain to follow people around and and track people like there are some actual like good spy stuff in in these movies and i I wish more of that were in the last two 
movies. Mm. Um, but I think in, in Quantum of Solace as well and in in Casino Royale, we do get to see Bond being a more refined instrument than just like a, a brute force billy club or something. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, that's why Casino Royale really works for me is that if you think about, you know, the literary precedent to Bond is really Sherlock Holmes, mm -hmm. right? I mean, Ian Fleming even kills off Bond at the end of From Russia with Love in the same way that Arthur Conan Doyle killed off Sherlock at the end of Final Problem, thinking like, maybe I'm not going to come back and do this. But then, of course, you know, writing new adventures after that. Holmes's talent for deduction is translated into Bond's talent for profiling, which perhaps doesn't really hold up great in the modern times, considering yeah. for a 50s era, spy that means sizing up people's ethnicity, nationality, sexuality, gender, etc. But the book Casino Royale is all about Bond using his ability at the gambling table and away from it, you know, in potentially dangerous situations. And I like how that's brought into the modern era in, in the movie Casino Royale and even called out just a little bit for being ineffective when Lashif is able to kind of use his tell against Bond. You know, he thinks that he can size up his opponent and gives Vesper this big monologue about you're not playing the game, you're playing the person across from you. And that's how he initially fails is that, you know, he thinks he knows everything and they're able to use that against him. So I think that that's just really neat. And it's a kind of a nice sort of modern version of, I think, what the Fleming Bond is supposed to be about. Yeah, so it's games within games within games in Casino Royale. And that's why it works because, you know, throughout the, the whole movie, you know, find out until the end, it's all been one big game where Vesper is, you know, a double agent playing James and she's being played by, you know, her own handlers. And so, you know, James can find out the chief's tell or whatever, but at the end, it doesn't really matter because his handler is being handled by even greater villains. And mm -hmm. while that might lessen the, the impact of the climax at the end, I think it is a more intriguing like premise for a spy movie. Yeah, I agree. And, and I love Mads in this movie, as we've already mentioned. Yeah. I mean, he, it would be really hard for almost anybody to play a vulnerable Bond villain the way he does, you know, where he kind of yeah. has these asides where he's sweating it and crying blood and whatnot. And then when he's getting leaned on by the people, you know, who want their money back, it's that kind of stuff is so, it, it just makes him a completely different kind of character. And like you said, how he gets whacked before the end doesn't even get to be the villain at the climax of the movie. And that they can use that to set up this other faction that is greater than he is that you know we're going to be meeting as it moves on i mean a, a big thing obviously these craig movies as opposed to the ones that came before was they did the fashionable franchise thing of you know having a big story arc that they were going to expand over a series of movies all right these are more or less straight sequels to each other at least the first two move right into set each other up and move right into each other before it's just you know straight adventures you know just one and done sort of things you know even though we have of course M and Q and Monty Petty and the you know kind of things that we're used to seeing in the in the franchise. Very few of them were straight sequels. Even Diamonds Are Forever, more or less, you know, barely even acknowledges what happens at the end of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. So if they're going to do that, I think it was a great idea to kind of set it up this way to have this vulnerable villain who is not in control and doesn't have like a master plan or anything like that, and is in fact under the thumb of this even greater threat that's going to be rearing its head in the next film. That's pretty neat. It's a yeah. nice screen screenwriting trick. Yeah, because he's a vulnerable, at-risk psychopath. 
And that's incredibly dangerous. Like he's willing to commit acts of terrorism. So he's not in debt to African warlords. Like that makes you do some crazy stuff. And we see him under that strain and in, in an incredibly very bonding way where he, you know, cries blood at the poker table. Like what a James Bond image, you know? Oh, absolutely. But he's got, he's still got that weight, you know, he still seems like a viable threat and everything. Yeah. Uh, so just just firing on all cylinders, Mads Mikkelsen in this movie. You know, one thing I'll say is that, you know, I love the opening of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I know it's a common complaint against it that, you know, oh, here's how Indy got his whip. Here's how he got his scar. Here's why he's afraid of snakes. Like one thing after another, all in one day. Yeah. I don't, I never cared about that. But again, I would wonder why nobody throws that accusation against this movie where it's like, this is why Bond drinks martinis and that's why he wears Taylor tuxedos. And this is his first Aston Martin and everything like that. The kind of fan service, I think that gets leveled against last crusade. I'd never hear that complaint about this movie. And to be fair, I guess it doesn't take place all in one afternoon, but uh, it's the same kind of like, you know, origin story of an iconic hero that we all know very well, where it's like, Oh, so that's why he orders that drink and things like that. It's strange. That's never, never brought up. I mean, the Vesper is in Casino Royale, the novel. Um, I, I can't remember True. if Austin, Austin Martins are, are in the book or not. Um, I don't think so. I think for better or for worse, self-referential gags uh, are part of Bond's history and have been since, you know, Connery. This era of Bond is also trying to have its cake and eat it too, because these are very serious Bond movies. These are real emotions. <laughs> but also, here's a DB5 for some reason, <laughs> you know? So, it, like, it wouldn't work if it was any other franchise, but I'll, I'll give it a pass because it is James Bond and it has, you know, what other movie franchise is, you know, pushing 60 years old at this point. All right. I'll give it a pass. You're right. Maybe I'm just a little bitter about people going after Last Crusade. Maybe that's sure, all sure, it is. Sure. It's funny that you say, you know, it's capital S serious bond and you're absolutely right. And I, this rewatch, like one of my main takeaways was, wow, the humor in this is the worst thing about it. Mm. You know, Bond uh, taking the keys from the guys who think he's a valet and then crashing their car to create a distraction and things like that. It's just like, I don't know if Craig can do goofy. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you might get away with a quip or two, but you know. See, I do like the key gag because he doesn't have to say a funny one-liner because i think that is craig's weakness is is the quips don't come off very well mm, with mm. him but because he's an incredibly talented physical actor uh, so when he's just doing body movement stuff whether it's action or with the the ballet thing i i think it works uh, Marty Campbell should have directed mm. all the Craig era Bond movies. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. As the confidence of this direction, I think is the main reason this movie works. You know, it's just, however you feel about the decision to, you know, kind of change up the sort of action that we're seeing in the Bond movies or, you know, the other kind of decisions that they made, he absolutely leans into all of them. I mean, he just, every single scene flows very smoothly one to another this is a film that has, you know, before we even get to the endings, it has three huge set pieces that you have to like set up and have, you know, Bond, you know, chasing this guy all across the country and going from up from one level to another, you know, and the fight st still keeps going and you have to have him chasing this guy at the airport and stopping him from this act of terrorism. 
And then, of course, everything that happens at Royale, it's just there's a lot of big moments and they would almost threaten to kind of unbalance the structure of the movie, except that Campbell just so perfectly moves into each one, just gets in and out so seamlessly and throwing in stuff like the Body Works exhibit. You know, the art, the production design of this movie is, yeah. is another A-plus aspect of it, you know. That has a very kind of Diamonds Are Forever, Circus Circus kind of feel to it, you know, the Body Works. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's, yeah. It just goes from... Uh, like amazing sequence to amazing sequence. And, you know, even when, you know, Bond is seducing Solange, it's just in, uh, photographed incredibly well. And, it, you know, that is sort of like ticking the box of, you know, Bond getting information from an attractive woman who uh, ends up dead. There are so many ways for an action movie that's two hours and 20 minutes to really stumble. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to get these varieties of action sequences from the the different sorts of chases, you know, it's still able to punctuate things to keep it exciting. You know, it it flips an Aston Martin seven times and then it goes straight to this, you know, one of the most spectacular car crashes we've ever seen. Amazing. Yeah, Yeah. they really flipped. They flipped an Aston Martin so hard, Aston Martin got angry. Like, we don't like the fact that our car is seen flipping so much in your movie. And, and the stunt goes, woman playing Vesper is really there in the yeah. middle of the road. They really veered yeah. away from her. Like, that's not like a uh, yeah. special effect or anything. She's yeah. really there. I mean, that's, I love that kind of stuff. 2000, 2010 special effects, we were really plagued with CGI for CGI's sake. And this movie, I think, holds up extremely well with because you know the the plane is a combination of miniature and real plane footage and that whole airport chase sequence is cut between two or three different airports and it all just really holds up visually uh and you know i I cannot give the movie more credit for that we should also give credit to the second half of die another day uh, for the (laughs) windsurfing scene which no doubt Made them think, let's not rely too much on sure, CGI sure, sure. for this next. I also have to credit this movie for knowing when to like quiet down. Um, because probably the most memorable scene in this movie, except maybe the, the parkour scene in the beginning, is the torture scene between Mads and Daniel Craig. And it's just two guys in a dark room. And the point of the torture is that the most simple thing is the most effective, which, you know, I kind of wish Spectre would have remembered. You know, people still talk about that scene. People still ask Mads Mikkelsen about it, and it's still incredibly effective. And, you know, for Daniel Craig to, you know, at the end of the scene, you know, he just he's giggling. He's like delirious with pain. And you could see the sweaty frustration on the sheep's face like it's so effective absolutely i mean again that's you know the desperation of lashif at that point where he's just going to get this code and get this money and this is the last you know resource is just to whack this guy's nuts until he you know finally cracks and gives it to him you kind of appreciate like his desperation and as the same as bond's pain as he's going through it best funny funny line in in craig's uh tenure where he says like the whole world's gonna know that you died scratching my balls that that's a great line. One complaint when I you know saw the movie originally was when they introduced the guy wearing uh, the, the the sunglasses with the one 
you know, glass in them later yeah. on. I thought it was Mads because, you know, I thought, oh, he, he got shot in the eye, right? Is that what it is? Like, he's still alive, but he got shot in the eye. So yeah. the first time I saw it, that really threw me off. And I mean, obviously, I've gotten past it since then, but... It yeah, is also confusing. a weird aesthetic choice to have two guys with eye problems be <laughs> baddies. Yeah, yeah, strange. But because that is not- another like small detail from the novel that this guy with like an attached eye patch to his glasses is following Vesper and Bond around. Mm-hmm. But it seems like a very arbitrary thing to import from the novel. Inconspicuous, right? I mean, that's yeah, a yeah. good look if you're following people incognito. <laughs> Although I had to ask when they when he does when Vesper does take the money out, does she have $120 million in that little briefcase that they're carrying around? Is that the implication? Uh I guess electronically $120 million. Okay. Like yeah, on a, a disc sure. or something? I, <laughs> like a hard drive? I, I guess. You know, they they do funny accounting in, in Swiss banks. I, I guess they do. Yeah. I just forget that they have those, you know handy dandy million dollar bills that you can do. yeah <laughs> uh, well one thing that i did keep track of on the most recent rewatch um yeah i just keep praising this film's pacing but it's a movie about a card game the card game doesn't start until an hour and 10 minutes <laughs> into the movie yeah. that seems very silly when i'm watching it i don't feel it drag to to the card game and i mean since 2006 this is without a doubt the movie i've watched the most i like it a lot Uh, um and you know the second lead doesn't show up until an hour into the movie as well you know and it's it still works despite all those you know screenwriting 101 uh f's that it might get I yeah. think maybe the screenwriting success that they have in this movie might have set up some uh, obstacles going forward. Oh, uh, well, if we broke the rules and Casino Royale works so well, well, can't we do that with these other movies? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't break the rules every time, just like you can't go rogue every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, the editing is so terrific. And there's a real sense of discovery. I mean, I know it's making fun of, you know, sort of the introducing, reintroducing all the Bond uh, stuff that we all love, but they just, you know, where you first, you know, we were following Bond, kind of learning about his character, and then we're meeting the new M uh, to Judy Dench, kind of re- revising that character. And and then Vesper comes into it. And then, you know, just, you know, when they finally get to the casino and there's just constant things to appreciate about every scene where you learn a new information and it's, pushing the plot forward constantly. And even when it gets to the end where Lashif is dead and we're kind of moving into this lull of an ending where it's just the two of them enjoying each other's company before the big climax, it's Eva Green. So you're going to like appreciate it. It's like yeah. There's no way not to uh, because she is just so dynamite. Credit to Daniel Craig's performance as Bond, you know, this angry, you know, like fuse box of rage throughout so much of it and his capacity for for violence and endurance through pain that it's such a relief to see him happy you know that james bond can't end the movie unless it's roger moore you know (laughs) the end of the movie he's he's not going to be living happily ever after with with even cream 
you've been through so much with this character and he's he saved that plane he saved the evergreen a couple of times he stopped the chief he's been through this torture and so to see him in the bright sunshine on on, on a yacht going through venice it's sort of a joy to have those few minutes of respite you know be- between multi-million dollar action sequences yeah and before we get to the big climax which you know as far as accepting like the crazy premise uh you know a sinking building i'm there i'm i'm, I'm with it you know that's yeah, a great yeah, yeah. idea you know that's something that does not make any sense except that it's awesome you yeah. know and i accept the awesomeness and move on that you know you can shoot a few you know air balloons and then the whole building will start falling yeah. apart <laughs> I'm, with that building. I'm with it i'm with it i'm with it just yeah, that yeah. one building yeah um i do love the relationship between daniel craig and judy dench as m Hmm. um this this sort of uh very english way of uh parent and child like sternness in place of love where where they actually have like a genuine respect for one another and and i do love you know the that sort of walking talk at the beginning where you know and and says that talks about uh daniel craig (laughs) shooting up an embassy and says that you know in the old days, if somebody had done something that colossally stupid, he would have had the good sense to, to defect. Like I, I, I love her sort of no nonsense uh, takes on, on that part of their relationship. Um, and I, I do think it's a, a credit to an actor as talented as Judy Dent that they're able to, you know, build that relationship up and into Skyfall. So I do love the, their relationship. Yeah, we'll definitely talk a little bit more about that, I think, as we get into these movies. I mean, the the angry chief kind of, you know, dynamic of her, you know, yeah. her performance works works here and uh, kind of gets stale kind of immediately for me. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, so Casino Royale got us all worked up. You know, we, were, we, we now had the confidence, thanks to Marty Campbell and crew, to, to think that this, you know, new reboot of the Bond franchise was going to go well, that Danny Craig was going to be great. And then comes Quantum of Solace two years later. Quantum of Solace's biggest fault is that it's not Casino Royale. You know what I mean? It's, that's that's the biggest problem is that the comparison is just, you can't escape it. You know, I mean, Casino Royale had just knocked it out of the park. So when Quantum of Solace comes in and hits a solid, you know, double or triple, if I'm going to use, really going to use baseball analogy here, um, it just seems like he struck out, it struck out, you know, and I think that was definitely the thought at the time when I first saw it in the theater, I didn't really like it at all. And I was definitely disappointed, but the main thing I was focusing on when I left was that it's the opening, like the opening for me is a real disappointment. The car chase, although the more I watch, it's not as bad as I remember. I just think it sets the wrong tone for the movie to kind of set it, you know, just while I appreciate that they want to like get right into the action and get the audience excited from the very first shot, it just it feels like kind of a mess. Then that that kind of stops and then starts again. You know, I mean, this kind of makes the the carnal bond sin of you know having a scene end and then we have the song and the titles and then we're right back into the same scene. You know, like it's does it's not like its own sort of thing. It's not its own little mini film that then we kind of move into the title credits. It's something that just feels sort of abruptly ends and then comes back into it and of course no bullet time shot that's a problem for me i'm sorry i'm a traditionalist in that way you know the title sequence yeah. uh kind of the opening half is, is one thing but having no bullet shot is just like why not and i know casino royale had already kind of subverted that thing by having 
it be part of the action, right? Bond turns turns around and boom, it's the bullet shot right in the middle of the scene. They could have done it in this one if they had just changed things a little bit, had the whole sequence with Bond and Mr. White and the quantum operative um, before the title sequence and then had Bond when he's up on the scaffolding and comes down and then swivels around and shoots the guy, that could have been the bullet time shot. Oh yeah, you know? sure, sure. They yeah. could have made it that. I mean, it just feel, I mean, this I think is me, you know, kind of being a little unfair to the movie just because that's how I would have done it. <laughs> you know, that's how I would have wanted them to do it. And so I get frustrated. I get frustrated every time with that opening after the opening though, I'm all right. I think I'm okay. I think things get a little bit better. Um, after the terrible song, which dear God, I mean, the first, the first 10 minutes are engaging and then they start singing and it's like, what am I listening to? I mean, you know, this is just, this is the worst kind of garbage. I mean, I'm not a big white stripes fan in general, but it's, it's not my favorite. Um, and I, I love Jack white and he's somebody who collaborates with people very successfully and very frequently. So I think like a lot of things in this movie, it's just underbaked. Like maybe if you given him, like it seems like the first draft of a good song that just, they should have just given him and Alicia Keys like another month to, to do it. Um, so I want to like it more, but yeah, it, it just really doesn't work. It, it did take me a little while to warm up to Chris Cornell's, you know, my name, but yeah. now I, I, I love it. Um, I, I definitely love how they incorporate it into the Casino Royale score. I mean, yeah, everything that comes yeah. up in the movie, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. When I first saw Quantum of Solace in the theaters, I'm somebody who does not like the sort of born style of action, you know, the, the quick close up cutting. And I think that's been a frustration I've had with a lot of American action movies for a long time, how you can't see anything and what's going on. It just seems very cheap and, and ineffective. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. Um, but with Quantum Solace, the more I watch it, the more I like it and the more I am able to follow the, the cutting of the action. And I think it does cut together really beautifully, but it's just a movie you can't appreciate on first viewing because of how the action is edited. You know, that's unfortunate that you can't enjoy an action movie to its fullest extent the first time you see it in a theater. Um, but I also think that's a reason why this movie has legs as far as people's appreciation for it goes. Mm -hmm. Um, because yeah, there are, I, I do like, you know, that opening car chase. Now, now that I know my face is going to be like pulverized into the asphalt and just dragged across the street for, you know, five minutes. And then we get to that great, you know, chase that goes into the bell tower and, and stuff that that's another uh, great action scene that I think probably when people first saw it was overshadowed by the sort of frenetic opening chase. Yeah, I think it like just the same way that Martin Campbell, you know, strikes that amazing balance with Casino Royale. This one seems like Mark Forrester is kind of hitting an imbalance with this beginning. Yeah. yeah. For the reasons I mentioned, you know, kind of placing things where they are and having two big action sequences right off the bat. I think it could have opened a little bit quieter, personally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I think they did make a big deal about it being a sequel to Casino Royale. And I think by not getting Martin Campbell to do it, you know, the Broccoli's really shot themselves in the foot because Mark Foster is just such a stylistically different director than Martin Campbell. And I, I don't want someone to try and imitate 
Casino Royale or Martin Campbell. That's that's a recipe for disaster. But if, yeah. so they, they should have just not made a sequel. You know, and you can still have Bond brooding about Vesper. That's fine. But you, the less you make the audience compare it to Casino Royale, the better. Yeah, totally. I think that this movie totally tries to kind of adapt that exact same style of Royale and kind of fails at that. Mm-hmm. It's so much better in the, the little moments, the little action moments, like knocking yeah. the motorcycle out from under the guy. It's an amazing moment. Yeah, where, where Daniel Craig like kicks the gut, this machine gun into his hand. Like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. exactly. Like yeah. you just like, I love little moments like that. Yeah, to- I mean, Quan Masalis, I think, is at its best when it's, you know, more subdued. Yeah. I think the big action sequences just feels like it's a little out of the director's hands. Although, again, the, the car chase doesn't bother me as much. Although, when I saw the boat chase this time, I was like, I completely forgot this scene existed <laughs> because it's just not engaging at all. You know, when he chases after her after she gets on, uh, Camille gets on Madrano's boat and he rushes to save her. It's just, you know, this very elaborate action set piece, but it just does nothing for me and just did not, I did not have a memory of it watching it this time. Yeah, there's a couple edits that just don't make sense. Like Camille has a gun all of a sudden out of nowhere. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it should be a stylistically distinct, you know, action scene that's very different from the opening, but yeah, it does leave me cold. I've moved past it a little bit though. Yeah. You know, like you said, it doesn't bother me as much as the first time I saw it. I'm willing to live with those action sequences and kind of, again, the biggest problem is this isn't Casino Royale. It's not Martin Campbell. So they're not going to be up to par uh, based on his predecessor. But let's talk about this, this story a little bit, because that was the big complaint at the time was everyone was saying there was a writer's strike. They didn't get to finish the script, you know, and that's the reason that it was kind of, some people found it kind of convoluted or confusing or that uh, some of the plots plot aspects were underwhelming i i like quantum i was really excited for the possibilities of making quantum the craig era big bad you know and the mm-hmm. idea that they could be anywhere that they could be anyone it's the most fully realized the system is evil sentiment that the bond films have ever had yeah i don't know if we need two separate government agents telling us hey we deal with bad people what can you do the lines are blurry but you know whatever it's okay it's not subtle but yeah, we also don't go to James Bond for subtle social commentary. No, no of course not. <laughs> yeah, I, but I like the idea of this genuine threat lurking in the shadows. That yes, powerful definitely. public figures meet via earpiece during a live stage, staging of Tosca, and that uh, you know, to, just to quote Roddy Piper, it figures it would be something like this. You know, <laughs> like these fucking assholes, these corporate, you know, yeah, and po- uh, political dickheads are this evil organization. You know, is that I love yeah. that. Yeah, and they, me me too. And the fact that the U.S. government is in bed with these motherfuckers, like, and it does seem very real that the U.S. government would be willing to support a coup or to turn the other way from a coup if it meant the access to oil. And it, I don't think it's convoluted that one of the guys central to the coup is lying about the fact that there's oil there. It's actually water he's hoarding. Yeah, and yeah. Hey, that's a concern right now in the world because of global warming. There's not enough water for anybody, so it I, it never confused me. <laughs> no, not at all, not at yeah. all. And I mean, it's very you know, it's a very clever kind of front to have the oil yeah. be the kind of main thing you think. And for the villains, even to you know when they murder Agent Fields with the oil and the Goldfinger fashion, 
you know, Bond immediately says, this is just another thing to throw us off to make us think it's about the oil. I mean, I like that. That's neat yeah. that they're yeah. kind of, you know, hiding their true intentions, which, you know, again, I mean, that's what quantum I think is supposed to be. It's supposed to be these, these hidden agendas playing one hand, but actually, you know, uh, having something behind their back yeah. all along. You were mentioning Tosca earlier. That is one of the great moments of Daniel Craig's Bond being a spy. Because he's able to take a, he's able to say, "Hey, I see you," and then he's able to look and see who reacts, who gets up and leaves, takes their picture, and sends those pictures to MI6. That is actual spy work. That is spying right there, spy yeah. one hundred and one. Yeah, he did it. He's smart. He he helped people, and he got at least he captured images of the bad guys. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean this movie in general. He gets to do some fun spy work. I mean, yeah. again figuring out what the actual plot is and, you know, kind of again, going against, you know, uh, his government to do his own investigating and whatnot. I know it's, he's going rogue again, but you know, at least he's, you know, uncovering these things and that's, you're right. That's fun to watch. Yeah. I like Dominic green as a character. I know he is another one who kind of gets, you know, thumbs down from a lot of fans, but unlike the other three Craig movies, certainly the latter two, this one doesn't make a big deal about, the villain is a dark mirror image of Bond, you know, yeah. with like Sylvan Blofeld, to a lesser extent, Lashif, you know, are like foils to Craig's Bond. But I mean, if you look back in the past Bond movies, you got what? You got Man with the Golden Gun is the only one where I think it's meant to be like a mirror Bond kind of villain. I mean, or Goldeneye, I think, is the big. Goldeneye, you're right. Yeah. The the big the basic Bond gimmick though is that's Bond against the other, and you know, and sure, yes. the Fleming books again. It's unfortunately that means the foreigner, the non-white, the non-British, non-straight other. But in movies, I think it's simplified to just good, evil. Right? Bond is nothing like the megalomaniacs he goes up against. It's the common man versus the evil rich industrialist. And anyway, Dominic Green, you know, and by extension, Quantum fits that mold more than any of the other Craig villains. He's this weaselly, unethical, vile, manipulative, hypocritical company man. And when he sees yeah. Bond coming, he literally he practically shits his pants. I mean, he's like, this is his worst nightmare to have someone who will actually stand up to him and not, you know, easily fall under his sway due to money or power or whatever it is he has to offer. This is a guy who doesn't give a shit about that and is going to shut him down. And I just love that. And it's a good, that's the kind of dynamic I want to see in a Bond movie. Yeah, me too. Totally. And he's so creepy. He like, when we first see him, he's like stamping receipt paper for no reason. Like he's just doing this <laughs> like incredibly creepy bit of business. And the way he treats Camille, is just pure, like abuser manipulation. And it's, like a subtle performance of just the amount of manipulation this guy probably does day to day. And he's just this vile worm that you want Bond to just get his hands around his throat. And I even love the fight they have at the end because I think the action, like how, how can you have this guy fight James Bond? And he just loses it to such an extent that he like, drives a fire axe into his own foot like that's how out of control he is and like that dynamic i think like i don't think we've ever seen that in a bond movie before and definitely really not he goes like yeah. full-on jack torrance in this yeah it's, amazing. yeah it's great and i think one of the another way the movie does set itself apart from casino royale is olga Kurlenko as camille 
Absolutely. I really love her performance in this. I, I think their relationship is incredibly unique and believable. You know, these are two very traumatized people, you know, traumatized in different ways. And so they form a very intimate alliance rather than a love affair. And we haven't seen a relationship like that in a Bond movie before. I think you could have had that with um, Pierce Brosnan and Michelle Yeoh if the screenwriter didn't decide to have them kiss at the end. And Olga Karolinko is, you know, she's such a great, uh, she's so great with action um, that it's believable that she would be very game to be on this adventure. I believe her as a secret agent. And so I'm just very happy with her cast and her performance. She's such a cool actor. And yeah. she could almost coast entirely on coolness, I think. But, you know, mm-hmm. she obviously she brings her A-game to this movie. And you're right. She's a more believable action female, I think, than Wylin or, or Jinx even. You're with her when she gets pissed at Bond for rescuing her from Medrano that first time. You know, she had a plan, damn it. You know, when Bond yeah. <laughs> gets captured, doesn't he figure out a way to escape and kill the bad guy? I think she had the same thing in mind. So, <laughs> you know, when she's like yelling at him, like, why'd you do that? I, I had him. I had him right in the palm of my hand. You're like, I'm with you, man. Bond, uh, get the hell out of here, Bond. She doesn't need you. But I, I, I also like that they don't knock boots. I think that that's, there's just no reason to do it. You know, I yeah. mean, to, to do it out of obligation, you know, not necessary. So that's one way that I, you know, when as much as, you know, some of the things that they change about these uh, more recent Bond films kind of make me cringe. This is one I'm, I'm with because they, they said the character, not as someone who's looking for looking for that kind of attention and love, but they do have this intimate kind of relationship, like you said, where at the end where she's cowering from the fire, you know, having this PTSD from when she was a child and he's comforting her. I like that too, is like a nice companion to comforting Vesper in the shower and Casino Royale, a little fire water sort of imagery, opposing imagery going on there. It's not that she's weak. It's just that, you know, they've kind of, they're just kind of in a corner where they're, they're, they're going to die. And, you know, and she's ready to like, let her, let him, shoot her in the head before she burns to death so uh, yeah i couldn't say more good things about her myself i could not say one good thing about strawberry fields yeah her name mm, is strawberry fields yeah. <laughs> kindly fuck off i mean god damn it bond yeah, hates yeah. the beatles <laughs> we know that already and yeah and in a movie where your two leads are too traumatized to form intimate relationships because of abuse you know m- murder we're trying to prevent genocide here you, you have a like a reference to the pun names of the past like we shouldn't exactly. be thinking about diamonds are forever when yeah. watching quantum solace uh, her insertion in the movie is completely beguiling I me mean, why would m send a secretary administrative assistant whatever it, it turns out she is yeah. to arrest james bond what does she know who James Bond is or what? I mean, did she want her to seduce him? I mean, that when I saw the movie in the theater, I think remember thing I thought was really tasteless and just maybe hate the Daniel Craig Bond was when they go up into the hotel room and she's just standing around and he's just like flinging off his coat and doing this and that. And then they end up in bed together and it's like, what the hell just happened? Yeah. I mean, it, it felt like, you know, okay, you, you're the one, you're my, you're, you're my fuck toy here. So let's go and, and jump in the sack. It's, not as bad as I remember when I watched it this time. I remember just being like, he was like, just can't even, it doesn't even like look at her or talk to her, you know, 
And she's like, this is what's supposed to happen this scene. Let's do it. I don't care. I don't care about you. You're going to die. It's not going to be a big deal. But it's not It's not shot in the way that I remember it being exactly. And there's, it's, he, he, he definitely does care that she dies. I mean, it's not that it's not as bad as I remember it being, but still just a useless character. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think the movie would have changed in any way if she wasn't there. And so it's, it's another, you know, dead woman used to motivate James Bond. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I wish one of the she, standards they could have lost. I agree with you. Yeah. But, but I, I guess I they guess... might need her to pad it out a little bit because this is the yeah. shortest bond movie, a nice lean hour and 46 minutes. I definitely appreciate that. Yeah. I, I guess the length is probably due to the writer strike and there are a couple other things and you could probably see that why this is not a finished draft you know you know bond just sort of happens upon a, a dc3 in the desert and has a, <laughs> yeah. a, a dog fight with some 1960s era italian fighters which is... craig bond is pretty good at randomly finding planes that he can just jump into and take off with yeah it's very strange um <laughs> But I think that points out, you know, it's very cliche to for people involved in the Bond movies to say, oh, the production is like a family. You know, I was brought in, you know, it made everybody feel at home. It was da, 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 da. But I think the presence of Purvis and Wade as screenwriters is proof of that, that this franchise operates as a family. Because, you know, these two guys have been screenwriters with the franchise since the Brosnan era. Right. And, you know, Martin Campbell has said that they do no credit to the franchise. Um, and so what, what happens... I've never heard that. Yeah. So what happens is usually they bring a draft and then the director, at least for the Craig era, brings on their collaborator, like a, a John Logan or a Paul Haggis or, or somebody. And then they spring off of the Purvis and Wade draft and do their own version of it. Mm. And it seems like a very inefficient way to write a movie, it's especially, you know, in the Quantum of Solace era when you were running up against the, the writer strike. So it requires several, I know, in studio movies, several drafts of a screenplay is not uncommon. It's usually the way things are done. But to have these two guys constantly be rewritten by the director and their collaborators seems very inefficient. But I think it does speak to the loyalty that Brackley's have for the people they work with. And, you know, the same stunt coordinators, the same special effects people, they're all the same throughout the, the Craig era. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, even if the results are mixed, um, I have to get them, give them credit for like standing behind their people, you know, in, in a business that's real quick to stab you in the back. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I mean, I think that's another reason why this franchise has endured as long as it has. This yeah, yeah, exactly. Sense of you know real uh, loyalty and connectivity that they have, you know, from the Broccoli Clan and the and Michael Wilson and whatnot. The scene with Bond and Felix, I kind of thought about watching this time. It's so good, but uh, it's just it's just nice to kind of include him in the movie. Uh, and again, even though he doesn't really play a major part, just his presence, you know, makes it feel makes you feel a little more at home after coming off of Casino Royale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeffrey Wright is such an interesting actor. Um, he has such a, a presence that his, you know, his five minutes of movie really goes a long way. He has such a great voice, um, and he's so believable as just this incredibly tired CIA agent. <laughs> and you can see the sort of spiritual kinship 
these two guys have with one another, even if, you know, their conversations are, are very, you know, to the point. I could definitely do with a Bond and Felix buddy movie with, with those two guys. I know that's not yeah. what No Time to Die is going to be, but if if it was, I, I would not say no. And I think that they use Felix too in these movies to kind of show you like, well, government agents are usually this. They're usually yes. sitting around. They're not, you know, they don't pull their gun. They just, they're sitting around waiting and they're bored and they're, you know, drinking cervezas or whatever. And Bond is the one who is the exception. It makes you appreciate more like what a you know superhero kind of action star he is, that he's, you know, constantly on the move and jumping from one situation to another, which is, you know, not the typical kind of secret agent uh, yeah. agenda. So that's, that's nice too. So I, I, they have good chemistry together and I really enjoy Jeffrey Wright being in these films and glad they brought him back after his absence from the last two. Uh, what are your th- what were your thoughts though on quantum as as villains that uh, kind of petered out as the series went on? Did you, were you did you think it was going to go further than this? Did you think it was an exciting sort of thing to bring into the Bond movies? Oh yeah, I, I definitely. What do, you, did. what do you think of the title Quantum of Solace? I should yeah. ask. Um, well, I mean, my my Twitter handle is Quasar Sniffer, so I'm all for uh, <laughs> superfluous <laughs> physics references in your titles. Yeah, I, I I liked I I liked the title. I, I I can't lie. I thought it was cool, uh, really unique. You're, you're not going to confuse it with any other movie, certainly. And I liked them as a secret evil organization. Um, I thought the way that they were operating in very real world, again quantifiable ways, like all right, we're going to manipulate and hoard natural resources to control world world events like that seems like a very villainous and very real world thing to do uh yeah so i was i was on board but solace for me is it's almost the perfect kind of bond movie in a way it's it's so middle ground where there are like lots of good stuff about it and some not so good stuff about it that when i go to rewatch it i'm like ooh, i'm curious how i'm gonna feel about this one Mm -hmm. this time it's not like going into casino royale where you're like i know i'm in for a good time and i know i'm gonna have nothing but great things to say after this viewing this time you're like am i gonna hate this one or love it when i come out of it you know i really (laughs) don't know how are my thoughts on it going to change there are a lot of bond movies like that where you're like i don't know maybe i'll like it more this time maybe i'll like it less and Mm -hmm. you know that's what makes these movies so rewatchable a lot of ways is you know kind of finding new things to discover every time so i would say that quantum of solace's pretty goodness works in its favor for me yeah definitely and you know one of the joys about doing this podcast with you is i think like half the movies that we watched uh before we podcast about you know since the, our first episode i like changed my opinion on or at least like liked more or like less than i thought it would so that's one of the great things about this bond franchise like the rewatchability you know supersedes almost <laughs> any other movie ever so that's what's wonderful about them oh absolutely do you know what what was the what was the biggest change in opinion from these rewatches for for this series of podcasts that we've been doing do you do you think for me, I guess it's probably finding out that the first half of Die Another Day is great. You know, mm. I really did not expect that at all. I could only remember the terrible second half. So appreciating some of the things from the first half of it was really surprising to me. I, I've always liked For Your Eyes Only and Living Daylights, but I think after our after watching them again and our discussions, I like them a lot more than than I did. So 
So I'm very happy to, to have done that. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. They're two yeah. of the best ones. They're yes. great. The conversation on the plane between James and Mathis, who I think meets a very unnecessarily grisly end, but it's this, you know, you know, this just quiet conversation between two guys who have been through some shit together and through especially on Mathis's point, through some shit he doesn't deserve. Yeah. And to still still like have these intimate moments, I think is is really powerful. And and I think, you know, it, it would have been better if we had a little more of those for the next two movies. It seems kind of superfluous to have him involved in this adventure when all he kind of does is die. But yeah. Giannini is yeah. so good as the character that yeah. it makes you appreciate more, you know, Bond's loss of Vesper and what the experience of the first movie kind of did to him to see Mathis, who had his own bad experience mm-hmm. uh, being you know, tortured by the English government, you know, for think- thinking that he's a traitor and then having to kind of appreciate that he and Bond both had these battle scars and kind of go through, you know, that kind of bonds them in a weird way and that his death scene is very tender. And yeah. like you said, it's this kind of thing that we're not going to see from the Daniel Craig Bond too much in the next two movies, having that kind of a moment with him. I, I would question just to bring up one last uh, <laughs> problem with the script is the guy that the, the revelation that v- Vesper's boyfriend, you know, was also using her and also is working for the government. Like that's, is that this guy's job? He's a gigolo for quantum, just like seduces f- women that they need to, you know, manipulate and they fall in love with him and <laughs> that's, that's yeah, his job. <laughs> I, I guess that that's his MO. He, he's a love assassin. In the same way it's that a love assassin, exactly. yeah, in the same way that James Bond's weapon is a gun, this guy's weapon is his penis, I guess. <laughs> his swarthy Euro charm. Yeah, it's, uh, it, 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 it's it seems like his picture would sort of get around the intelligence agencies if he's. Oh, this is the the, the sixth MI six employee <laughs> you had a relationship with. He's into she spies. What are you gonna do? And he gives them all the same gift. Yeah. Seems short sighted. Pretty pretty lazy guy. Pretty lazy. (laughs) Uh, But but Bond learns something, doesn't kill him. Yeah. All right. Skyfall. Mm. Go. Okay. So, you know, when I rewatched this one for the podcast, I, I have to admit, I loved the experience of watching it because the, like, the i mean roger deakins like just it looks immaculate it might be the best looking bond film ever made the the glass tower fight might be the best bond fight i've ever seen you know i I would put it right up there with the red grant fight um i think it has the best performance by an m in it i think judy dench is fantastic um i love the siege of skyfall even in all its home alone-ness. I love Ray Fiennes as Mallory. I think he has a, a great arc. I love Javier Bardem as, you know, a monologuing Euro weirdo. But also there's so much <laughs> doesn't make sense. Like the biggest fault with the script, and I'm not the first person to point this out, is that Bond and M fail at every step of the movie. Javier Bardem Silva is ahead of them the whole way through. Every person that comes into contact with Bond dies. Um, 
M is being pushed out for pretty good reasons. Like it's the most, the movie says this is the worst intelligence breach in modern British history. Like the names of every agent of NATO has been stolen. Like, why would you have that on a hard drive in, in the first place? Like what, who would be like all of our, all of our undercover agents are here and here's their names. And we're going to keep this all on one easily transportable hard drive. It's they want to avoid some departed type mix ups, you know, where yeah. everyone forgets that he's actually <laughs> uh, undercover. So they no, use the plot from the first mission possible movie, I guess. Yeah. Um, and they use the bad guy from Goldeneye, uh, you know, a, a burned ex agent. Um, so when, you know, when M's on trial or when she, at that at that inquiry, you know, after this intelligence breach, after under her purview, MI6 headquarters itself was bombed. Um, it's like, you know, you kind of deserve to be fired. Uh, everything you're doing is wrong. So it's very frustrating for these very glaring flaws to be in such a gorgeous, well-directed movie. Each individual sequence is extraordinarily well-directed, but it's put together so haphazardly because i i think a microcosm of it is severin because you know the the macau casino is gorgeous um you know it, it's of course uh, a bonded casino obviously all that but the the set design is brilliant uh the way naomi harris as e money punny and i love her as money punny uh move throughout the casino and converse i love that and when Bond has a conversation with Severin, her gradual cracking into a woman who's showing fear. Like at first she's being the sexy seductress and then you see those layers being pulled off by Bond as like her hand is shaking and the ash of her cigarette is like too long as she's like forgetting to ash it. And it's a brilliantly played scene. And then bond finds out that she's been in the sex trade and then of course two minutes later he has sex with her and then she's killed so severin and the way her character is sort of unceremoniously dispatched as a the display of you know silva's cold indifference to human life is indicative of the problems of this movie because she could have easily survived it's an arbitrary decision by the writer to have MI6 arrive 60 seconds later. Because if Bond had just pressed the radio 60 seconds earlier, they would have arrived in time to save her life. And it would have been something that MI6 or Bond could have achieved to thwart Silva along the way or to at least show the audience that like, it's good for MI6 to be around. Everything that panel of inquiry is saying to M is correct. They're, they, all they've done is fail this whole movie. And it's very frustrating to see these great performers and, you know, historic, you know, world saving heroes and of cinema just get duped by Silva over and over again, as, as wonderful and over the top as Javier Bardem is as Silva. It's, it's frustrating how easily he's able to manipulate them you know when they get silver's laptop and they bring it into mi6 network security 101 
is no matter how secure your network is, there's nothing you can do, no firewall you can put up to prevent a dum-dum from bringing in a USB or a hard drive and plugging it into your secure network or somebody, a, a bad actor doing that on purpose. And like, I've never taken network security class, but I know that. And as anybody who's ever worked in an internet environment knows that. And here is Q, the smartest man in MI6, just willy-nilly plugging himself his laptop to the most secure network in the Western Hemisphere. It's <laughs> stupid. <laughs> I, I'm so glad to hear you say all this. I feel like the biggest, the biggest argument I have with fans of this movie is that they won't accept that Bond fails in this film. Yeah. That, you know, we're talking about a hero, a 007, who ultimately fails. And not in a way that's like, makes you think, but the way that the movie seems completely tone deaf about. Like at the end, he's yeah. still doing the heroic pose and going back on the job with a new M. And it's like, no, he, he fucked everything up. Like literally everything he did was wrong. I, I hate Skyfall. I'm just going to come out and say I watched it a third time to talk to you yeah. about it. And I was kept hoping every time I see that opening, I get fooled because, you know, I'm a little bit into it at the opening, but I hate this. I hate this movie, not just as a bomb movie, but as any, any movie mm -hmm. uh, used to call it one of my five least favorite movies, but that was, you know, since then we've had what we've had th that Wonder Woman 84 and uh <laughs> Tenet, you know, we've had stuff since yeah, then. Yeah. But um, my my poor parents, I'll tell you, when I went to see it, I saw it with my parents. And they got it with it full earful for an hour afterwards. Mm -hmm. I couldn't stop talking about how much I hated this movie. And they just sat there and took it. They didn't even, yeah. it wasn't even a conversation. It was just me giving a monologue about every single thing. Many of the things you just talked about. But yeah. really, but really, at the end of the day, even more so about the kind of plot points and about Bond being a failure and cozying himself up to a former sex slave and things like that. It's just the concept. It's just the approach. They had to go and get all Chris Nolan on the Bond movies, you know? Yeah. It's like, you know who Bond is. So, you know, him standing with his back to you, looking at the landscape is all you need to know about this character is what they're saying. I mean, bullshit. That's bullshit. You know, mopey, somber, and irritable equals gritty. I was mm -hmm. with the Daniel Craig Bond in the first two movies where it was a more serious approach or a more somber approach. But this is action star as thesis term paper to me. You know, it's not an actual character. It's just a concept of what the character is supposed to be that he's just constantly shot after shot of him standing with his legs apart, looking at the, the horizon or, you know, looking at the building or whatever. It's just, you know the full Batman begins sort of treatment. And I just, I hate it. And just from the top, everything is wrong about how they introduce him. It's a, I mean, Roger Deakins, I agree. Yeah. He should be not, is he, has he been knighted? He should be knighted if he hasn't been knighted. He's clearly one of the greatest, uh, you know, cinematographers of all time. It's a beautiful looking movie, but I think that that just goes further to like showing us a painting of Bond more than an actual mm -hmm moving story about this character so i think that in general is just what strikes me as wrong from the get-go and i know a lot of people who are detractors of this movie are annoyed by the his whole plan is to get so his whole plan is to get captured and the convenience of the the the, tr the train you know he, he bombs the track and it 
right at that moment. Like that, yes. the, even that doesn't bother me because he's a super genius. He can memorize a train schedule. He knows when this train is coming. Like, uh, and his whole he's a psycho who wants to get revenge on him, so he gets captured, so he can infiltrate their network. Okay, fine. But yeah, yeah, you know, what you're saying, we establishing that character, we do lose the characterization of of Bond. And I think that is what makes Casino Royale so special is that we get the uniqueness of Craig's portrayal and his approach to the character and this modern approach to, you know, this Cold War era icon. And we're just sort of left complacent with what the previous movies have achieved. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. When I saw Casino Royale with Chris Funderburg, that was his first Bond movie. He'd never seen a Bond movie before. He His first question coming out was like, is that what Bond is always like? You know, is he, because he, he could really differentiate what made Bond special from Martin Riggs or John McClane or, you know, any other number of action heroes, you know, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Ethan Hunt, you know, like, you know, he, he couldn't tell what it was that was supposed to be special. And I, I think I didn't see that with Casino Royale myself. I, with Skyfall, I see exactly what he's talking about, where it literally could be interchangeable to anybody else. Mm-hmm. I also think it's kind of funny that in a movie where they're eliminating the Bond girl, right? Presumably in a progressive women aren't just eye candy fashion. Bond, number one, sneaks into the shower with the sex traffic victim, as we've already talked with established trauma, as we've already said. Yeah. And also field agent Monty Penny gets busted down to secretary. <laughs> Behind yeah. a desk where she belongs. I mean, is that seriously the only alternate job for a government trained agent fetching coffee and answering the phone? Boo, right? I mean, <laughs> Naomi Harris is a very cool, very interesting actor. She deserves better. I mean, just make Monty Penny an agent, right? Just give M a male secretary. I mean, they probably should just retired Monty Penny after Lois Maxwell, really, when I think about it, because. With M and Q, it's a code name, so they could have different people taking over the job. They can't just automatically change a secretary's name to Monty Penny, you know, right off the bat. Uh, it just feels like I don't feel like there's been anything to say about Monty Penny since Lois Maxwell left the series. And to treat it like this is, just, you know, I mean, to set her up as a field agent who gets busted down to secretary just seems incredibly offensive <laughs> to me. Yeah, the whole idea of Money Punny is this secretary that James Bond comes in and sexually harasses, and it's funny uh, before he goes <laughs> into the boss's office. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very 1960s archetype that if you update it without being sexist, it's not Money Punny anymore. So exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but so really, it, it's Maxwell yeah, and you know her like yeah. the strength that she has in that character. You yeah. Know? Yeah, yeah, because the dynamic she was able to establish with both Roger Moore and Sean Connery is that she was able to give as good as she got and that she was having fun with it. And yeah, she was in control yeah. of that situation yeah. every single time. I mean, that's why yeah. she's so great. When you see Bond, you know, maybe intimidating, you know, or uh, cornering, you know, uh, another woman, that's not a kind of thing mm-hmm. he could do. He can get away with, with Monty Penny, you know, she, like she said, she'll, go, she'll give it right back to him. So, yeah. And I, I, yeah, I really like this. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, and I really like the scene between Naomi Harris and Daniel Craig when she's shaving him because she's the one in control there. But there's no reason why it just can't be Agent Eve played by Naomi Harris instead of Money Pony. Yeah, 
Yeah, because yeah. she's good in the she's good in the movie until the end. Yeah. There, I mean, I like her. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, yeah. just you know, thinking about this movie and this most recent watching ex- experience, and me being me, you know, just the, the opening title sequence. It's you know Skyfall, which is you know flat out slaps, no question. And you know it, the opening title sequence has like blood raining on a gothic mansion and a skull whose teeth are gravestones like so me you know cribs there's a a skull behind me over there like (laughs) so i'm watching this and i'm like is this not my favorite bond movie (laughs) just because I'm, i'm so excited through those opening titles and and for it to so let me down even with all those great elements it's it's it might be like the most frustrating Bond movie because there's just so many ways it could have been great that it falls short. It definitely is. And Q sucks. Uh, his chemistry with Craig is awful. <laughs> his smug line, we don't really go in for that kind of thing anymore. Shut up. You just gave him an optical palm printed gun that only he can fire, which is exactly what the real Q did in License to Kill in 1989. I mean, come yeah. on. Who are you trying to fool here? <laughs> You know that they wanted Connery to say that welcome to Scotland line so bad. They clearly wanted yeah. to cast him at the end of the movie. As much as I love Albert Finney, it's just so distracting knowing that like clearly this is a disappointment for them that they couldn't convince Sir Sean to come out of retirement and you know be in a Bond movie. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, I think it it probably would have at least in fandom, it would have established that even James Bond is a code name that mm. we're looking at the Sean Connery bond of the sixties in retirement in Skyfall. And even metaphysically, that, that could have been cool. Yeah. Yeah. So there's also a lot of real world reasons why this movie is frustrating. Yeah. I mean, the thing too, when everyone says Craig's serious bond is great, but Dalton's serious bond still doesn't yeah. get its due. I think about Dalton and Skyfall, right. And how for him, a betrayal from M would have been really devastating. You know, like that would have been something that would really have crushed his bond and really set this story in motion. With Craig's bond, he already hates M. He scoffs at her, he calls her a bitch. You know, he's too cool for school. I just don't even like, I know it's supposed to be like, oh, they're antagonistic, but really they, 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 they respect each other. And it doesn't read for me. It just reads as like, he's an asshole. He gets her killed. He completely fails. If you think about it, he fails in two of the four of these first for movies he loses the money in casino royale he mm. lets him die in, in skyfall you know it's uh it's really a team failure here though as you pointed out you know first q plugs in the laptop and then tanner and 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 the finds m are standing there mallory is standing there being like okay take m out to an isolated place to draw silver there brilliant plan nothing could go wrong <laughs> and the frustrating thing even about that is like why skyfall yeah. he can literally take her anywhere in the world so he takes her to his house. It's <laughs> so strange. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're gonna it, go hide. It, so I'm gonna go to my house. Like, all right. Then you get a all whole right. other series of things that make no sense. Silva sending in like a first squad of guys. They shoot the whole place up, and then Bond kills them. And then when he comes, he's like, "Nobody kills them but me." Oh, I'm glad none of those guys killed them. Jesus Christ! What do you? What is your crazy? And his plan in general. I know you just said you know it's. 
one of the more excusable things in the movie, but really like he has this intricate thing where he gets captured, gets himself out, explodes a train. And then he's just going to go shoot her in daylight in a public place somewhere. Like what's, where was the intricate plan there? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. yeah, He could have just, yeah. He could (laughs) have just assaulted the inquiry without getting captured. Yeah. Right. A, A public inquiry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So even Silva's plan, and and you know, obviously, Bardem kills that coconuts monologue. I mean, I can't even yeah. think of the word coconuts anymore without thinking of the yeah. way he he pronounces it. But personally, I prefer his, his Pedro Negro, uh, yeah. Yeah. his Pedro Negro uh, monologue from Collateral. Mm. I mean, if that in the nightclub is a terrific, another terrific villain monologue by Bardem. But uh, so even even Bardem's great performance, I can say, well, I've seen him do better. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, another reason why Quantum of Solace is great. You have a villain with an evil plane who gets foiled by James Bond. Right, it's right. What we want to see in Why these can't movies? we hand Bond missions anymore? Why does he got to be rogue all the time? I want him to get a mission. Bond, go check this guy out. Okay. And he goes and A leads to B to C. And, you know, he gets involved in this stuff. Uh, well, okay. Because even in, in the first now, I know, I know I've keep mentioning the novel but one of the most interesting things about casino royale is like after he's been betrayed by vesper and he's you know laid up he's he's talking to mathis and he's going in you know he's thinking to himself like you know of all the you know training and gunplay and world traveling i've done it doesn't come close to the damage that vesper did by being an intelligent asset inside british intelligence or in inside mi6 mm-hmm. so what's the point of me doing all this stuff if everything i do is going to be countermanded by this one betrayal and you know now we're fighting communists but 15 years ago i was allied with the communists fighting the fascists and now you know the people who are giving me orders are kind of similar to those fascists that we were fighting 15 years ago what what are we doing here and so that sort of soul searching and almost like moral nihilism with what he's doing can still be within him getting a mission and, you know, taking down the bad guys. You don't have to choose between one or the other. You can have both. And Casino Royale is a, like a 190-page novel. You know, it it's not too difficult to get that done. <laughs> I don't know if it's just because they overthink these things. I don't know if Sam Mendes really has that Q mentality of like, we don't go in for that fun stuff anymore, you know? Yeah. And, you know, and a lot of people say, well, there's fun stuff in Skyfall. I guess it's just, it's so countermanded though by malaise and mm-hmm. sadness and, and depression that is kind of theoretical, you know, it does not have any kind of semblance in, in reality because we only kind of know Bond had a bad childhood at Skyfall and, you know, it's it's all sort of implication. <laughs> we don't really know why he hates Skyfall so much or why you would yeah. want to go back there. We don't really know how any of this affects him because it's just like get it, it's Bond. Okay, go. Doesn't just doesn't work for me. You know, I like I need to see Bond reacting to things the way a character would, not the way, you know, just yes. a, a a wrote action action movie star would. You need things that separates Bond from everybody else and to me, Skyfall doesn't and, you belong know, in the Bond canon for that reason. Yeah. And this era of Bond is unquestionably influenced by Christopher Nolan. And the whole gritty reboot thing was spawned from Batman Begins. And 
So Casino Royale is, you know, going off of that. 100%. Accepting Tenet, like the Batman movies for me are the least interesting Christopher Nolan movies because they're doing to Batman what Skyfall did to James Bond. They're making him just another action hero. So that's not what I want in my comic book movies. And it's also not what I want in my James Bond. I'm really glad you said that. I didn't know what your thoughts on the Nolan Batmans were, but I feel the exact same way. Again, it's, you know, Batman is a concept, not as somebody like, don't show me Batman looking at something. (laughs) Show me why Batman's cool. Don't just, you know, I don't go in saying, I know Batman's cool. You don't need to prove it to me. No, you need, that's your job. Your job is to prove to me that Batman, James Bond is an interesting and cool character every single time. You know, you just, yeah, otherwise you're just not doing him this, a service. He's just, as far yeah. as I know, if I only saw Skyfall, my impression and knew nothing else about the character, my impression of Bond would be he's boring and he's mean and he's a failure. You know, giving us the DB5 with machine guns isn't enough, especially because this this version of James Bond doesn't really have a connection to the DB5. You, you know, like it's it's awesome, but it's only awesome because i've seen every james bond movie 10 times right why does he even have that in the garage uh so anyway i tried i tried again you know to see what everybody else saw i mean because i always think too that maybe the reason i can't let it go is that this one was so super successful you know it was the most Mm -hmm. successful at the box office and everyone was saying it should have been nominated for best picture and best director people went just ape shit over this movie when it came out. And I keep thinking like, maybe it's just that I feel a kind of contrarian sort of uh, bitterness towards it or something like that. But it really, I don't think that's what it is. Cause I want to like this movie. I've given it three chances. I think, I don't think there's a movie that I dislike this much that I've watched three times, honestly, usually mm-hmm. if it's a movie that I'm just yeah. like, absolutely hate, I'm done with it. I don't need any more proof, but with this one, I've, now gone back and i've really tried to reassess it in a way that's like i need to just relax but i'm starting to see with this movie like what tony stella really hates about danny craig he doesn't feel like bond like the kind of bond Mm -hmm. i want to see starting with this one yeah yeah i definitely don't hate it as much as your tony stella but it's harder to watch than even the other bond movies that i feel less affectionate for i think because of things like having Roger Deakins as, as a cinematographer or some of the great action sequences. Why isn't the, why is it the script better? <laughs> like, yeah. They need to deserve those images. That's my idea. Yeah. You know? Or it's a commercial, you know, commercials look yeah. pretty. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's shake off Skyfall here, my friend, unless you had anything else yeah. to add. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go into the next movie Spectre, mm-hmm. which its biggest merit is that it's not Skyfall. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put it this way. Mm. Spectre is 2021 to Skyfall's 2020. <laughs> it still sucks, <laughs> but at least it's not unanticipated traumatizing awfulness the way mm-hmm. that, you know, 2020 was. So it's sure. bad, but it seems a little less bad just because the last one was that that devastatingly poor. Um, what I was so excited for, despite hating Skyfall, when I saw that teaser poster, right, with the mm-hmm. um, the bullets and in the shape of the octopus on the windshield, I got super excited. I mean, that is a beautiful image. It perfectly sets up what's, what, what Spectre means to Bond, what a threat he can it can be, what he stands to lose against them. I mean, that's the kind of, you know, hi- history of Bond thing that I can appreciate. Like, you know, give me an image that makes me think about 
what this new, you know, this reintroduction of this, you know, big bond standard, you know, symbolizes. We've got a proper bullet time opening, so that's good. And then we immediately have a pretentious opening title card. But I, I think starting with the day of the dead is cool. The skeleton, the flower motifs, it recalls uh, the Jonathan Cape Fleming book covers by Richard Choping. You know, they look it looks yeah. really cool, and I like that. But then everything that happens in the opening sequence is completely ridiculous. You know, Bond excuses himself to go and catch the bad guys right as they're discussing their secret plan and falls on the couch when the building collapses. It might be the worst thing that's ever happened in a Bond movie, that falling on the couch. It's an, an insult that that happens. And then, you know, let me take out this helicopter pilot so we can crash into this massive crowd of people. At least now there's a worse helicopter-based pre-title sequence than For Your Eyes Only. That's all I can say about that. Um, but speaking of which, I think the best part of Spectre, right, is when they Xerox copy Roger Moore. The car chase leading to the slick parachute escape, the play in the snow, the fight with the giant henchman on the train, even the little maze through the building they set up for Bond at the end with all the cute little pictures, you know, posing behind the bulletproof glass and the assorted gimmickry isn't too far off from Scaramanga's Funhouse, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's the kind of gimmickry I can get behind. It's maybe one fire truck chase attended to the balls, you know, while hanging from a Zeppelin away from full-on Roger Moore in those sequences. So that I can appreciate, but it has the same problem Skyfall has when it comes to just the idea that this villain, you know, is so iconic that we don't even need to reestablish him. You should just appreciate that Blofeld is this really scary guy. We don't need to reestablish him. We don't need to convince you that he is. He just should know that he is. I mean, they managed to not only repeat the Star Trek into darkness, stupidity, pretending that this isn't the reimagining of an iconic villain. But once again, they apply nothing that makes the original character so iconic. So superficial shit like the cat just kind of hanging out there, make him do something other than look smug, you know? I mean, Kirk and Khan are never in the same room together in Wrath of Khan. Connery's Bond is in three movies with Blofeld, only meets him at the end of the third one. Yet modern movies just insist on these lame confrontations with gloating bad guys behind the glass. Stop putting villains behind glass. That's all I want to say. I was thinking, Spectre is like the Clark Griswold in Christmas Vacation of a Bond movie. Like, (laughs) we're going to have Spectre and a big weird henchman and a bunch of goons and uniforms and a volcano lair. And it's going to be a Bond movie. It's going to be fun. But it, it's too but, many Christmas lights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too many. So we don't get a Bond movie because we're so concentrated on all these like little, like check boxes of of things that we think are going to be awesome. Now I I think Batista's great as Mister Hinks. That train fight legitimately kicks ass. Um, I do like the opening sequence. It's whatever. It's like a music video, you know, a one shot <laughs> music video. You know, we talked about in Casino Royale. Bond tied to a chair, the simplest methods are most effective. This is the third time Daniel Craig has been tied to a chair by a weird European and tortured. And it's the least effective version of that. Because at least in Skyfall, there's that like psychosexual, like tete-a-tete thing him and Silva have going, which is interesting. But here, like a, a little drill goes, a CGI drill goes into his head. It's, it's not scary. But and it's, re- and, it's and it doesn't yeah. work either, does it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're told by Blofeld that this thing is going to, you know, 
destroy his mind and it does doesn't do anything apparently yeah and, and he just like breaks <laughs> out of the chair it's Un- unless my theory is correct that this is his um uh occurrence at owl creek uh bridge moment where he you know just imagines that he breaks out and kills everybody and blows everything up and he's really still in that chair all along getting his brain destroyed because so, that's uh, how that sequence plays it's yeah. it's bizarre but i i do love uh monica bellucci as of course yeah i mean that's but you know i wish that he had saved somebody in skyfall so when he says don't worry you'll be safe felix will take care of you i didn't i don't want to laugh <laughs> what is the last time you saved an attractive woman's life james bond not so good at protecting women no yeah that's your whole thing man <laughs> that's like a defining characteristic of you daniel Craig. no just that's one of the defining characteristics of the literary version of the character because one of the things that james bond universally detests has almost a physical reaction to is violence against women like that's something that like makes him go nuts and motivates him to murder people one of one of my favorite moments in the James Bond literary canon is in the short story, The Hildebrand Rarity, where an abusive billionaire dickbag ends up with a pufferfish shoved down his throat and thrown off a boat. It rules. Like, I want that version of James Bond in a movie, not somebody who lets all these women die. Oh, yeah. I mean, going back to the Severn thing, which you had mentioned, I yeah. mean, that seems ridiculous. I mean... Everyone, you know, defenders say, well, I don't think he was really in a position to do anything. It's like literally five seconds later, he makes his move and kills all the guys. He clearly was in a position where he could have saved her life and just didn't care. He was there. He didn't even try. You know, it was just absurd. (laughs) I wish that Bellucci was the main Bond lady in this one because Madeline Swan must be the most boring Bond girl. I don't know if you agree with me on this, but... Princess yeah, Sleepy, not, yeah. <laughs> she yeah, literally takes a nap in the middle of the movie. I mean, Jesus, she looks so tired yeah. all the time. <laughs> yeah, Monica Bellucci is an actress who just has this simmering chemistry with anybody that she's on screen with. So it seems a natural fit to put her in a Bond movie. And it, you know, when she was cast, it's like, oh, duh. Like, why hasn't this been done before? Right, right. Um, and so that to, for her to be there, you know, for five to ten minutes seems like a waste. It would have been great to have her on a train with, with James Bond or her, you know, go toe-to-toe with, with Batista, with Daniel Craig. That would have been awesome. Yeah. Or um, killing James Bond and then the rest of the movie is about her. I would have been fine yeah, yeah. with that, too. <laughs> She's wasted. Wasted in her scene. It's yeah. just feels like he feels bullying to her it's not a sexy scene because he's just such a thug and where it's funny because where where i said that casino royale had excellent casting he it i think this is an interesting kind of comparison because here the here the casting is obvious which is does not equal good necessarily you know like batista and bellucci are, are awesome but there's no idea to use them behind let's cast cool people and Casting Waltz as um, as Blofeld just seems like a no brainer, but it should you should probably use your brain before you cast him because yeah. it's 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 more just like he's bringing the kind of creepy uncle vibe that he usually has to this role. 
and there's nothing to beyond that just you know oh yeah christoph waltz you look at him and you're like oh i know he's an evil guy yeah because in casino royale we you know it's not like Maz mickelson was new to movies but he was certainly new to western audiences the same for christoph waltz and inglorious bastards like they had found these proven performers who weren't known and they turned in masterful performances. So like Spectre should have found their own Christoph Waltz, not yeah. harvested his reputation from another film. Exactly. It's just more laziness, I think. Yeah. You know. And what's 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 Hinks's mission anyway? Is he supposed to kill Bond before he gets to Oberhauser? Because if so. They clearly have control of the train. Why not poison the martinis or, you know, have any other various way that they could kill him? If, if Blof, I keep calling him Blofeld, his name is Oberhauser. I don't know how to call him Blofeld anymore. <laughs> uh, if Oberhauser, you know, wants him there, why would he put Hinks on the train to kill him other than to have a cool action scene? Just, you yeah, know, it, things like yeah. that just shouldn't bother me in a Bond movie. I shouldn't even be thinking about that stuff. But this is the kind of movie that makes me think about it, you yeah. know, because it's, doesn't do it well i mean it, they make him james bond's brother which is an austin powers plot twist for god's sake i mean it reminds me of like space balls i am your father's brother's nephew's cousin's former roommate you know i mean it's meaningless to have them have this connection from when they were young except theoretically you know it's supposed to make give it more gravity give their relationship some kind of a more intense sort of connection but it doesn't it doesn't mean anything it's just more lazy screenwriting. And yeah, yeah. Dominic Green was, you know, supposed to be a little wiener, but if you're going to cast guys Blofeld, he's got to be formidable, you know? Like he, did they think that they were casting Kronstein instead of Blofeld? And Waltz is like this little nerdlinger guy, you know? He's not somebody with any kind of like a physical presence. Uh, the way even Donald Pleasance, you know, had like a kind of threatening presence when he was standing next to Bond, even though he was, you know, a decus diminutive guy. He still, you know, felt like a dangerous man. And Waltz just seems like, again, like a creepy uncle in this movie. Yeah, it's it's incredibly frustrating because, you know, Bond isn't somebody who needs a familial, a familial or even a personal connection to accomplish his mission. That's what he does. That's what he's built for. That's, you know, what makes him who he is. He's able to foil these plots. He's able to put his life on the line to save the world. And, you know, maybe along the way, he'll, get laid and eat the best food in the world on the government's dime or on the bad guy's dime. But it, it, he doesn't need the motivation of revenge to get all that stuff accomplished. And that's what made quantum of solace so unique when it first came out, because he was on a personal quest for revenge. So you can't keep doing the, the novel thing over and over again and expect it to pay dividends. You have to you know, like push forward with a different new idea. Maybe. Exactly. Um, and I think structurally, the movie could have just been the same if Blofeld was just trying to get revenge on Madeline Swan for what Mr. White did betraying Spectre. Mm -hmm. If Blofeld could just easily have said, I'm the author of all your pain to Madeline Swan because he's the reason Mr. White killed himself. So it could have been like almost the exact same movie, but like only 10% is absurd. <laughs> I guess it just wouldn't give Bond a chance to show his great protective skills after he promises Mr. White he'll protect his daughter and then yeah. takes her on a train straight to the villain who's trying to kill. 
in the middle of okay the it's uh why bring her at all what do you need her for you're literally only taking her to put her life in danger that's the only thing that could happen she she provided the location <laughs> of l'america and that's it that's all she needed to do she could take a nap and then nap for the rest of the movie we don't need her anymore uh, but being the author of all his pain, could people stop taking credit for Vesper's death? She killed herself. Like, yeah. How can you pin that on Oberhauser? How can he pin it on himself? He's just some evil genius who can get his employees to stand and stare at the same time for yeah. some reason. And okay, okay, exactly. So <laughs> why is he even doing this? Because he's he constantly knows where Bond is. He constantly knows what the government is doing. He has a high level plant inside the British government. Why does he need to do anything? He's already won. Like so, his whole evil plan is to like transfer his his data charges to the British government instead of his desert facility. Like I don't like the he he knows where everything is already. He doesn't need more surveillance. Incidentally, is there really a need for a ticking time clock at the end of this movie? I mean, presumably if they activate Nine Eyes, they can then turn it off, right? I mean, just turning it on is not going to be that yeah. damaging, right? And theoretically, you could just shut it down and then you're fine again. <laughs> so I guess if he didn't have any worldwide surveillance getting that instant access to the world's intelligence services could mean he could immediately download all sorts of sensitive data. But yeah, I guess, so, I guess yeah. he's too busy. And, still trying to kill bond while they're <laughs> sitting up. Nine yeah. eyes. And speaking of, of nine eyes, another problem with the movie is the obvious casting of Andrew Scott. Yes. Who yes. is already, you know, so well known as Moriarty from the the Sherlock series and honestly I know a lot of fans love him but I found his portrayal of Moriarty ludicrous and yeah. scene showing in a very bad way and over the top um I think he's an interesting actor I think he has a great look he has these just huge like jet black eyes that just make him very intriguing to watch on screen you know like he's a a shark or something but the fact that he's a weasel government you know plant is no shock to anybody like of course he's a <laughs> right. exactly no i feel the exact same way and again no effort to make this an interesting villain in any way other than moriarty get it right he's he's, yeah. he's evil <laughs> when we're talking about quantum of solace where they just kind of completely make it non-canon at this point completely canonize it out of the of the series at this point where they make it a subsidiary of specter which is just, it reminds me just to bring up Austin Powers again, when they defrost Dr. Evil and they're like, hey, our organization is now a legit corporation and he doesn't want, doesn't care, just wants to keep stealing warheads and ransom the world and just do silly yeah. outdated shit. Like Quantum was a corporation that was, you know, embedded in the system, you know, and was, how are we going to get that out? Like, you know, how are we going to get this tick that's burrowed its way so deeply into the skin of the world out? Yeah. Well, I guess if they're just led by Spectre, who are classic layer-owning bad guys who are going to do plans that fail, then it'll be okay. We don't have to worry about them anymore. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. I liked Quantum, and I thought they could have been a cool yeah. mastermind organization to go up against Bond. And you know, as soon as they got Spectre, they're out. You know, we're just going back with Spectre again. <laughs> 
they were sort of like like a a first world Al Qaeda almost. These independent yeah. cells operating among themselves, you know, manipulating world events and controlling industry. And and now it's you know yeah like you said. This. Yeah, like quantum's in your iPhone, right? I mean, it's like yeah. who knows where else where well it could be controlling or what it could do. Spectre, it's like they they're able to draw the DNA of every major villain off a ring on a laptop for like a random laptop. Not a very good hidden organization, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> Probably shouldn't have a mascot if you're a secret <laughs> criminal organization. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. And and they yeah. they blow up MI6 again. Like, uh... Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, honestly, and again, I'll say like, it's got some, it has scenes that I do consider fun, unlike Skyfall. Like it, it lets it, it lets it tear down, goes back to some of the Bond basics. Some of the stuff is absurd, but at least it's, you know, it's stuff I want to see. I really don't have a problem with Spectre too much until they get to the giant raisin, you know, at the, with Blofeld. Mm-hmm at his base and then at that point it just becomes like why am i even still watching this because the nine ice thing doesn't seem like a real threat and oberhauser's connection with bond is so completely unviable that i can't care what happens in this in this scenario at all bring back mr white just to get rid of him like they did mathis and quantum of solace uh bond infiltrates a secret meeting of international criminals again you know like you said it's just it's repeating repeating ideas but with no basis to like make them interesting but no. still comes off to me like a mediocre bond film as opposed to a yeah. terrible movie like i consider skyfall <laughs> and i think you know with the craig movies and how they do take themselves seriously these flaws are more glaring because you know the the logic gaps of previous bond movies or the outright silliness of something like diamonds are forever it they they just read differently in in those films but when you just have such you know narrative gaps and um questionable motivations it's just going to be much more stark when you take yourself this seriously and yeah as much as i admire casino royale for taking that risk when you can't follow through like with a a specter it is just that much more glaring and when you tried to take a shortcut like oh i'm your secret brother and i think that we're going to get into this with no time to die you know continuity can be a great thing um you know i experienced this with with comic books you know quite a bit you know it, it can give you direction it can give you something to hold on to when you're desperate or give you a, a path to walk especially if you're new to the property but it can also Continuity is a chain that ties your worst idea to your best idea. And so I think No Time to Die has to reckon with all the bad ideas from the, the previous two films. I think that sums it up beautifully. I think that's a, that's exactly what the problem is, is making this a Craig era, you know, this interconnected thing is that, you know, they have to constantly deal with things that they've set up in the previous movies. They have to completely wipe out things that they think are bad ideas they have to keep things that you know are still bad ideas. Take us into no time for now. I'm actually I'm very anxious to hear what you had to say about it. So now, no time I, to die. Especially with these, you know, great conversations that you and I have had about, you know, James Bond and how sort of malleable my opinions on these movies can be individually. 
because when I first saw Spectre, you know, it was the first time that I got to see a James Bond movie with my best friend, Barbara, who, you know, loves Bond as well. And so <laughs> that experience seeing Spectre was awesome. And so I was positively giddy leaving the theater. And, and for the, those two hours and 20 minutes, you know, seeing it, it was great. But then it's, you know, later, it's like, oh, wait, <laughs> no, that's not, not that great. After ostracizing um, my parents at Skyfall, yeah, I now only yeah. see Bond films alone. But I'm not I, allowed to talk to yeah. other people about Bond <laughs> anymore. Um, now, no time to die. You know, let, let me let me just preface real quick, just sure. just kind of for people who haven't been following it. So this this movie was supposed to be released originally in the U.S. November of 2019, two years ago, uh, and they moved it back originally because Danny Boyle left the movie, and then. Uh, it's April 2020 premiere, of course, got pushed back due to the COVID outbreak. It's moved to November and then to April 2021. And now finally has been released again two years later in October. And I just want to say, so we can have a nice, clear discussion about this. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. We're going to talk about it from top to bottom. And if, you've not seen the, if you've not seen the movie, stop this episode right now. Close your computer. When you get back from the movie... Reopen your computer. Subscribe to the Pink Smoke Patreon, right? A mere $2, you have access to all our Patreon-exclusive goodies, including videos, commentaries, festival coverage, our ongoing thought experiment, Fire from the Fire, with such great guests like Mr. John Arminio. Not to mention early access to every new episode of the Pink Smoke podcast. You could be listening to this one before anybody else. Okay. Spoilers. Go, John. Okay. Well, I'm right off the bat, it it is too long. It's two hours so and 40, forty some minutes, <laughs> as as evidenced by maybe by the the heftiest pee in recent memory that I took after leaving the theater. <laughs> but I also have to say, leaving the theater, I was hyped after a, a two hour forty five minute movie. You know, you know, coming out of theater. You know, eleven o'clock in the evening. I was like, ah, James Bond. I, I, I love James Bond. This is great. Um, I'm not saying it's the best James Bond movie ever, but I had a really goddamn good time with this fucking movie. And I, I know it's a movie made for someone like me who loves James Bond and has unbridled affection for Daniel Craig and his sort of arc as James Bond. Because I feel like it's it is both James Bond reckoning with everything he's seen and accomplished and suffered since Casino Royale, but everything the character and the the actor has gone through. So the ups and downs of the franchise, the the highs and lows, and the good ideas and the bad ideas, and it's just sort of grappling with all of that. And so I felt this movie like reaching out to me, being like. In, in, and it's engaging me emotionally. It's like, how am I emotionally invested this much in this fucking secret agent? <laughs> All right. So what did you think, Mr. Cripps? I felt the exact same way yeah. for about an hour. <laughs> okay. I I think this movie starts off with a very strong hand. It, it sets up a, a real mystery. Bond going to Vesper's grave, seeing the Spectre symbol, and then it blowing up. Biggest oh shit moment I can remember 
in recent memory. You know, like that was incredible. Yeah. That's yeah, the that's, specter I want to yeah. see. Exactly. That's my specter. You know, like that is some amazing, amazing setup for like what could be, you know, a real danger James Bond. And then they kill Spectre and then they're not the back anymore. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, let me ask you this. I don't know if you, how much you knew about the plot going into it. I knew nothing about the plot going into it. Um, yeah. Okay. So how did you feel about this, this Bond film that was delayed by COVID being about people who gather together and die of a horrible sickness and Bond, who is isolated for years, is fine until he decides to go back into public life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, James Bond movies definitely have tried to, you know, stay current, you know, with international threats, be it, you know, the Cold War or oil pipelines or, you know, resource management, like in Quantum of Solace or, you know, digital security and, and what have you so it's only natural they're going to eventually come to a pandemic threat kind of unfortunate that they come came to that point <laughs> right before the worst pandemic since 1918 so I, yeah that was a little it's like oh well no wonder this was delayed longer than any any other movie um yeah i mean my impression was bond should have just stayed retired probably then he would have survived he can't stay away um but yeah i really i really was into the movie i was super into the movie uh from the beginning i was like what's this kid doing in my bond movie but then it was like oh it's a flashback so no more kids in the movie good 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 no actual kids in the movie <laughs> um but uh but no everything uh in matera is great uh, every, the whole pre-title sequence, I really like. I, oh, we didn't get to mention it all. The Sam Smith song from um, uh, Spectre, which I like a lot, actually. Writing on the wall, I think is a good song. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, not a fan. No. <laughs> I like it, and I and I like uh, uh, Billy Eilish's song for this too. They're very similar, yeah. actually, but I, I like them. Yeah. So I, I was into that. Um, when I, I had already said I was excited to see Jeffrey Wright again as Felix. Yeah. I really think he and Craig had the best chemistry of anybody in, in the movies uh, and uh, going to Cuba and an armistice scene was just so great. She was terrific, obviously. Yeah. Uh, yeah because was... uh, that was so good. Um, Cause there's a lot of patriarchal goofy bond girls. Like, Oh, look at this funny, funny chick that James Bond has to deal with. And, prevent her from messing up the mission and then you're sort of presented with like that archetype of Anna Diarmas mm -hmm. and then she totally subverts it and it rules <laughs> and I mean like I don't know if there's anybody in the world that looks good in a, a low-cut dress than Anna Diarmas so there's there's that and then like she's dual wielding with a, a machine gun and a, and a, yes. and a like a, a handgun it's awesome very awesome and she's also Almost an audience surrogate in that scene. You feel like you're the one getting a drink with James Bond and going on a mission yeah. with him. You know, you really get, she's so excited. Her character is so excited to do this thing. Yeah. And she's been preparing for this mission. It really feels like I've been preparing for this movie and I'm right with you. Like I'm in it. Yeah. yeah. I totally get it. So all the stuff in Cube is great. When they killed off Felix, mm -hmm. I was devastated. 
I was really upset. Yeah. And I knew at that point they were going to kill off Bond. I knew as soon as they killed Felix yeah. that they were thunderballing everybody from the series. Everyone we start off with in Casino, right? The original M, Vesper, mm-hmm. Matthias, Felix, and Bond. They're all gone. <laughs> They're all dead now yeah. in the series. I knew yeah, they were cleaning house, and it was like, oh man, this is going to be a bummer moving forward. Yeah. As soon as I heard the we have all the time in the world line. Mm. It's like, okay, either James Bond or Madeline Swan is going to die. Um, and then I, I think it, it was sort of inevitable after that. Um, yeah. And so I, I kind I, of already, I, think, I kind of already figured out that they weren't going to use Madeline as just another device yeah. for the Bond character by getting killed off in the opening or yeah, later in the yeah, movie yeah. to make a deeper scar for Bond since this was the last movie. So I had that same premonition of, yeah, if one of these guys is going to die, it's going to be Bond. Oh, one guy they left alive. Wait, one guy they left alive. Tanner. Fucking oh. Tanner. We Tanner. forgot Tanner. That's a reasonable movie. It's reasonable that you would forget Roy Kinnear's Tanner just hanging out in the corner over there. He's the one who survives. You know, they they pick, you know, themes from Honor Magic's Secret Service, but so much iconography from Dr. No. I don't know how I feel about that because it certainly mm. looks cool, but... I don't know why this last Bond movie of Craig's era is connected to the first Bond in any thematic way. There's the pun of the villain wearing a no theater mask, like Dr. No, right. like, I, I guess there's that. Um, and the brut- the way they use the sort of brutalist architecture from Dr. No and a lot of the Ken Adam gra- uh, set design is mm-hmm. pretty cool. Um, but I'm just not sure what the point is. You know? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if they consciously wanted to close a circle of the whole series, you know, with this one. Mm-hmm. If the, the Broccoli's are feeling a little long in the tooth, if they think it may be about moving on. I did wait till the end to say that they that says but James Bond will return. So yeah, I, I guess they're at least thinking, you know, about the future, but ways to tie it into yeah the iconography and I, and I myself was a little bit mixed on the use of the majesty secret service stuff although they do correctly do what they didn't do in Mas- majesty secret service which is use the beautiful louis armstrong song in the credits the ending credits yes. yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, I wish like that they had done in that movie yeah so i think that they're just maybe tying this one really wanted to make it a big exit for craig and a big ending to this era by really reaching back to the past and really making you think a lot about different aspects of the series but yeah did it work organically i don't think so i think that mr robot was not very well used in this movie i just didn't understand what he wanted like beyond revenge he just wants to kill everybody in the world that's that's it i mean yeah. i it, I, that's where it really wears on you the, the length of the movie you know in those yeah. final scenes where the, that long i mean our, i've already complained about leah sadu being such a sleepy looking actor and when they have their confrontation what should be intensity is more like lethargy like i was falling asleep listening to the two of them talk to each other and it didn't get any better when it was him and bond in their clim- climactic you know uh, scene together where it's just this really drawn out dialogue sequence and 
what's Bond gonna do? They're really building up to something. He's gonna do something really. Oh, he's just got a hit and gone. Okay, <laughs> you know? yeah, just really started to kind of wear down, and that and complete opposite. I think the the two opening scenes, the, every, every pre credit thing. I thought like this, Carrie Fukunaga is doing as good a job as Marty Campbell. Like this is really good direction. But I didn't feel that by the end of the movie. I feel like he kind of lost the film towards the end. That's why I guess it felt a little more disjointed the first the first half compared to the second half. Maybe not so much as Die Another Day, but you know it uh, definitely started we- getting a little weary for me by the end. And I was definitely wondering when they were going to wrap things up. I-, I did really like the stairwell assault that that uh, Bond does uh, near the end where he's trying to get to the the bay door thing I, I i like that a lot did you did you like it i i'm i don't know yeah. how if i'm mixed i feels a little video gamey to me a mm-hmm. little first person shooter yeah i don't know how i felt about it but what did you think of of nomi that's another thing that i thought uh shauna lynch's character could have been done better um i thought Lashana lynch was super cool she is super cool. like yeah she's just incredibly charismatic um had great moments uh between herself and craig uh, some great piece of performance um but i thought the resolution was a little weak you know because they brought in this you know in- incredible young african-american woman who is clearly very good at her job um well liked uh by m and mi6 and before the end she says let james bond be 007 now mm-hmm. which is weird you know for a, a black woman to voluntarily give up her spot to a 50 year old white man uh, yeah like and to do it that way you know to have her just say oh by the way make him officially make him 007 when it like when we have no investment as an audience i mean if at the very end their last moment together was she called him 007 you know yeah okay that would have a little bit more of an emotional impact yeah but yeah the way it did was strange um i have this thing too where my wife who's a photographer and i talk about this all the time uh about lighting black actors in movies Mm -hmm. and in this one in particular i was just really distracted by how they were lighting for daniel craig and she would just disappear i mean especially on digital photography they, they've got to think of something because when you see a movie where it's prominently black actors you're like holy shit what am i seeing i'm actually seeing faces and like they're properly lit if you see it like in just a regular movie where a black actor walks into a scene though especially a very dark black actor like lashana lynch you're like oh my god like what's wrong what's wrong with the camera why <laughs> why can't they pick her up I don't know what technically they could do about it, but for me, it's like a really distracting thing in movies. And in this one, especially, I just felt like I wish they had come up with some way to, to light her better in scenes with Daniel Craig. It is sort of like a, a visual symbol of how the movie is focused on him and not her. It kind of becomes thematic like that. Yeah. Yeah. It does. And I guess that does, you know, bring up the the ongoing question of who should be the next bond and should it be a woman should it be a non-white actor um mm-hmm. you know I, I am of the same thinking as daniel craig that there shouldn't be this one franchise that there the movie industry should have more quality roles for women lead actors 
Of course. Um, but on the other hand, I do kind of just want to troll the Chuds. You know? <laughs> Hire a... Just make a black woman James Bond. Just to trigger... Oh, a, I, the, I was delighting the, the in it. Yeah. I was delighting yeah. in it when Twitter went nuts over the idea that she was taking over as Bond. You know, yeah. when, her, when her initial role was revealed i thought that was hilarious and i had the same feeling of like you know what if assholes like this are going to be this enraged do it <laughs> like yeah. i think that's even more important yeah. than anything is just being like fuck you dickheads you know yeah i i would personally like to see a, a south asian actor in the role because i just think the legacy of british colonialism in in that area of the world would make a very interesting choice to, to be the representative of England and and it, it would be nice to have a, a South Asian actor as the, the face of, of an international franchise. As um, long as they you know did something with the character because I really feel like Nomi could have yeah. done more than be the sidekick ultimately. Yeah you know, yeah yeah definitely. Tagging along you know she could have been more than that so I was a little disappointed that she didn't have more to do. Uh, let's see what else do I got here in my notes John I got Madeline goes to sleep again in the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She just loves her a little sleepy. Um, they even went with the Alyssa Milano overalls for the kid when they decided to Superman Returns Bond in this movie. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I this this does Fleabag want to do a spy kids movie with is that what everyone's saying now? There's gonna be a spin-off with Matilde Bond in it. Is that the the end game for this uh, introduction? And I don't know what the movie was doing with the kid also because you know initially daniel craig you know he you know james bond sees this little girl and sees the physical resemblance to him and she's like she's not yours madeline swan says he's he's she's not yours which i thought was cool i like the idea that she had moved on from mm -hmm. bond and started a new life and then i I did the math and was like oh wait a minute It's only been like five years since they were apart. That doesn't yeah. work out. And then, you know, Rami Malek immediately knows that the little girl is James Bond's daughter. And there's this theme of trust between Swan and Bond, how, you know, they, they don't trust each other after the Spectre bomb at Vesper's grave. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing Swan does is lie about the most important thing in her life to James Bond. And that the movie never really reckons with that. You know what I'm saying? It's a strange decision. Yeah. To tell him that it's not his daughter when clearly yeah. it is. And everybody who sees and, her knows that she is. Yeah. And and clearly James Bond knows it's his too. Right. Maybe she's trying to say she's not your responsible, like you're not her father like you're not here for i don't know i don't want to read yeah. too much into it but it's uh yeah it's strange that's a good point but i did like i did like a lot of the callbacks to the books um i like that vesper's grave comes you know from on her majesty's secret service that's where it opens that's where he meets tracy when he's going to visit her grave which he does every year i like the uh the garden of death from you only live twice the book is you know incorporated into the nanobot factory layer at the end mm -hmm. which again is you know it's cool but Again, what are they doing? Why do they need to open the blast doors? It's a missile, isn't it? Just going to blow everything up. 
these plot problems. <laughs> these sixty-five-year-old blast doors are going to protect this facility from modern-day cruise missiles. Clearly, and these are the them. and these are the only missiles we have. We can't like yeah. shoot more missiles at them later on. <laughs> Got to get those doors open now, Bond. And I don't know why uh, Safin has to go back. He, we see him leave. And then he comes back all by himself to, okay, just to fuck Bond over, I guess. That's sure. really, why not? Live to live to die another day, Safin. That would be my recommendation. Oh, okay. So, so it sounds like you, on the whole, mm-hmm. like this one more. I mean, I definitely like this one better than Skyfall Inspector, for sure. Yeah. I, I don't know if I like as much as the first two. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely not as much as Casino Royale. But, um, and I, and I want to go see it again. I'm excited to go check it out again before it leaves the theaters. Um, yeah. Despite how long it is, maybe maybe I'll leave early. But but really, let's talk though about. I mean, obviously there are some pretty pretty big decisions. I mean, they might as well call this movie "No Time to Fuck" because Bond just really looks too tired to even have sex, even though he's got women acting seductively around him left and right. He's very uh, uh, monogamous in this movie. Does yeah. not want to uh, does not want to bed just any woman. Uh, and then the decision to kill him off, obviously. I mean, again, it, I kind of saw it coming. It kind of felt a little Han Solo in Force Awakens. I, I mean, I'll, I'll just say, killing. What's the ultimate like end to an arc for this failure of a Bond by Daniel Craig to die? Right, like that's the ultimate failure. Yeah, <laughs> to be a James Bond who doesn't make it back from a mission. Yeah, he's either going to ride off into the sunset or die. And I don't think this James Bond is capable of riding off into the sunset. I do actually, in this movie, I sort of appreciated that weariness he brought to the character. Like, I, I saw it akin to Roger Moore in View to a Kill. Like, like, why is there this evil in the world? This is disgusting. It is unnecessary, and I'm tired of putting my body and my soul on the line for this and so i i really actually appreciated that aspect of of daniel craig's uh, portrayal in this film and so i think from from that person who's you know is shouldering this burden you know even if so much of it is self-inflicted it does feel his death is pretty inevitable and, it, you know, again, it's sort of targeted to people like me who love Daniel Craig. And it's like, we're going to get you in the heart, you little bastard. We already got your money. Now we're getting your soul. Like, <laughs> I, I will say, I wonder if you agree with this. His performance feels very different in this movie than yes. it has in the, the previous films. I actually thought it was maybe his best performance as Bond in all five of them. Maybe it's because of that weariness or, you know, that he's kind of got heavier emotional stuff and i i ultimately anything negative i say about the movie i have to kind of <laughs> counteract by saying well every complaint i have about the skyfall version of bond they don't do here you know like they make him a real person with real uh baggage and real emotional issues that you know i can something that i can hang on to while i'm on this adventure with him he doesn't just seem like some you know too cool for school, smug, brooding thug like he does in Skyfall, or you know when he when he bullies Monica Bellucci into sex, Inspector. You know he's 
almost like tender in this film in a way like he's almost yeah. a little teddy bearish in this movie and i kind of appreciated that about it i thought it was a great decision like when he goes into to the prison his first reaction you know to see madeline swan is shock but he puts his hand out to shake her hand and for you know plot reasons she doesn't reciprocate but he he doesn't he's not the jerk in that moment you know which yeah. may, might be a first for this this bond he he manages to not strangle for uh blofeld all of like two whole minutes before he <laughs> he finally does uh yeah so that shows maturity in in the character and all it took for him was you know five or six near-death experiences I was laughing that entire scene where Blofeld was very slowly moving towards them in this little yeah. cage. <laughs> this is exactly what I'm talking about with this approach to the character. You know, he's supposed to be, you know, in his Hannibal Lecter glory, you know, here. We're supposed to be intimidated, but it's just like he's on a one of those, you know, little stair uh, chairs, you know, that goes up and down. Like, I thought it was ridiculous. But so he dies from the virus, right? Because Bond touches yeah. him. Now, I get that, you know, it's supposed to be that Madeline touched Bond and that's how it contracted to him. And then he touched Blofeld and then Blofeld died. But Bond was already exposed to it at the Spectre party, right? Theoretically, they say it's always in your system. It can never go away. So why did they send Bond in to see Blofeld in the first place mm -hmm. if he was already exposed to the virus? Seems yeah. like even with it, Madeline, he could have, uh, he could have killed Blofeld by touching him. Yes, I, I guess they would. <laughs> Uh, I can't help it, nitpick. Uh, I can't help it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. The the first two thirds of the evil plot, I like. You know, Spectre's not immune to blowback and malfeasance themselves, so we're getting you know Rami Malek's character getting revenge on what was done to him and his family, um, using means, you know, engineered by MI6 Inspector, and I thought that was cool. Like we're we're seeing, you know, these non-governmental agencies at war with each other mm -hmm. and you know and i thought that was also a cool way to sort of deal with the continuity and messiness of specter from the previous two movies without having to actually continue that story um and so i liked that but yeah i didn't understand why he then wanted to murder the world yeah the transition yeah. does not work yeah, yeah. no i agree it's almost like though what they kind of did with quantum where it's like specter was bad but we're going to show you this guy's worse because he's going to kill all of specter uh kind of you know trying to just one up their own sort of thing where it's like it would have been better if you could have you know established a really dangerous organization and then kind of ran with that for the next few films also how bad at revenge is Safin? if after the, the the flashback sequence that opens the movie, he can't find Mr. White after what, 20 years or whatever. He still yeah. hasn't, he never never does catch up with Mr. White and get his revenge on him. It's not like Mr. White was hiding. I mean, Bond could find him easily enough in Casino Royale. Maybe, ju maybe oh just yeah. lost interest for a few years and yeah. then decided to get back on top of it. Uh, what's the opposite of plot armor? A plot ball and chain? I don't know. <laughs> the plot required him to, to wait 20 yeah, years exactly oh my god and how what's the age difference too between him and leah sadu because i didn't think it was him at the beginning 
because it's like, oh, this is like an adult and she's a kid. But yeah. Rami Malik and Lisa do are like the same age, right? Or I don't know. Yeah, I, also thrown off like, by that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> maybe like 10 years age difference. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. So he doesn't I, look 10 I, years I old in that opening scene. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it also reinforces the age difference between Leo Sadu and Daniel Craig. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, you know, Daniel, Daniel Craig was older than Eva Green in Casino Royale. Of course. And Leo Sadu is about the same age that Eva Green was in Casino Royale. <laughs> well, that's another thing that I found disappointing about Bellucci appearing inspector was I don't know if you saw an interview that Craig did. Where someone said, "Oh, uh, Bellucci's almost uh, fifty years old," and Craig said, uh, "You know, it's it's crazy that she that you have a, a more mature woman in the Bond movie." And Craig's response was, "I'm almost fifty years old. She's the right age, you know." Yeah. And after that, I was like, "Wow, that's very cool. I like that they're gonna, you know, I mean, it's Bellucci, so Bellucci at fifty is you know every other woman at twenty-two, yeah. but still, I like the idea that like it, they were gonna kind of embrace, you know." a more b- believable sort of, you know, aging in the romantic uh, interest. But of course, when Spectre came out, that obviously did not happen. You know, this movie has had, you know, such a journey, you know, from creation to release, you know, because of, you know, the Danny Boyle version, whatever that was going to be, uh, then that was scrapped. And then you got Gary Fukunaga to, to come in and sort of, you know, sort of reinvent the project. And, you know, it's the last move for Daniel Craig, you know. And be the first the American director, too, to do a Bond movie. Yeah. That's a pretty big yeah. deal, too. Yeah. You know, um, I think a lot has been sort of ginned up about how Daniel Craig hates the character or hates, you know, these movies because after Spectre, he said, oh, I'd rather slit my wrists than do that again. Right. But, you know, he had just like broken his ankle or broken his leg and, you know, it was an incredibly long and arduous shoot. So, you know, of course a, a middle-aged guy would be like, no, I'm not doing that again. Right. <laughs> um, we all just kind of took it like he was John McClane, like I'm getting too old for yeah. this shit to a Martin Riggs yeah. sort of sense or uh, uh, Murtaugh sort of, you know, sentiment, you know, but, um, but I, I could see how it would be taxing on, on anybody, yeah. let alone a guy, yeah. you know, Craig's age. So, and you know, it, yeah, and I'm somebody who is just an unabashed fan of this, of Daniel Craig's portrayal and of him as an actor. And so to see him bring this portrayal to fruition in a movie that has been delayed for the last 18 months because of the pandemic, in a movie about a pandemic, it was just an extremely cathartic experience. And, you know, not something that I had expected. And so I'm very thankful that the movie is as good as it is. And it gave me as much as I want from a Bond movie, in addition to all that catharsis, um, that it, I really did find it very, very moving. And, and so I just, I just really appreciate being able to experience that in the movie theater. Nice. Well, speaking of a journey, man, we've been on one too. I mean, April 2020 was when the first episode 52 yeah. dropped when we started talking about the Bond movies, and here we are wrapping it up. And it's been it's been great. I've been, I've yes. loved watching these movies again. I've loved having little arguments and little agreements with you on them, and uh, it's just great to uh, to revisit these movies every once in a while. I mean, they obviously they 
They're movies that started before, way before we were born. They're going to pop probably go on way after we're gone. But it's just, it's got this, it's, it's just inside of, you know, your system. It becomes part of you, who you are so much that you kind of can't help, even though, even if you hate, absolutely hate one with Daniel Craig, you're first in line for the next one with Daniel Craig. It's just what yeah. this franchise does to you. You know, I mean, there's just that some special sort of thing about it. So where do you think, where, where would you like to see Bond go from here? I mean, any specific thoughts about where they should take it? Do you think... Uh, a huge alteration of the character is in order or would you be happy if they said, okay, we're going to start readapting the books, you know, set them in the period and it's going to be, you know, a six foot dark haired British actor playing Bond, which, yeah, which two I, extremes would you, or something in between? What do you think? Um, I definitely wouldn't mind a period set Bond, um, but I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I was I was a big fan of the Man from Uncle movie from a couple years ago, but that uh, did not perform commercially. So I don't think we're going to get that from James Bond. Um, so I, I would just I would like to be surprised by the Bond franchise because I think in a lot of ways the the franchise has played um, trend chasing uh, for a lot of its existence um you know from chasing black exploitation to chasing kung fu flex to chasing like the miami vice sort of drug runner thing in the 80s to chasing um jason Bourne and christopher nolan a action movies so i i would really like them to be bold and set their own trends again mm. um and and you know instead of setting out to pick a, a, a non-white actor or, or to pick a woman, pick the right actor and to be open to all possibilities of, of what you can turn James Bond into. Because it's what is magic about the franchise is that it is so malleable and it is so far removed from the Fleming novels at, at this point, you know, and, and as much as I like them, you know, for for the better, I think. So what about you? Where, where do you want to see the franchise go? I, I like that answer a lot. So, you know, if they could do something surprising, that's what I that's what I expect from these guys, honestly. With each new movie, I, I never know what to expect. I never want to hear anything about it until, well, I was going to say, until we see that, you know, that bullet shot, you know, but <laughs> sometimes we don't even get the bullet shot. Um, yeah, I, 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 I obviously, I trust the Broccoli's They've you know lived with this thing their whole lives, and uh, and, I, and I don't think that they would just give the property away to somebody who didn't know what they were doing. So, mm -hmm. whatever's next, I'm I'm really curious to see what happens. And I'm I'm pretty sure I mentioned this in our '70s episode, but one indelible thing, um, you know, just re reading up and researching these these movies is that you know uh, Yafet Kato. Um, on Live and Let Die, he, he made no secret about how he was dissatisfied with the writing of his character. He, he didn't like the makeup and he's just an actor who doesn't suffer fools. But at the end of the day, and this is a quote from him, he said he regarded Cubby Broccoli was like a father to him. And so for Yafikado to say that about a studio boss, like there's no franchise in the entertainment industry where that kind of relationship from like the studio head is established with 
you know, the actors to to the production people and all the way on, on down the line. And so I think it it makes it incredibly unique, especially in this media landscape where everything is controlled by you know two corporations. And so I really hope that this franchise can continue and and be a family business for as long as it can. Me too. It's a special it's a special thing that exists. You know, very unique. And, and great. John, thank you, man. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. And anytime an we honor. every talk, it's been Please. so much fun. Yeah, honor for me, me too. Wherever it goes, let's let's get together and talk about the next one. Share our feelings about it because definitely, yeah. that is, that's definitely something I would look forward to.